Hello, hello. This is Tom Arnish of Arnish Models from Germany speaking. And now you know how to pronounce my name. Arnish. Simple like that. I just want to thank everybody for supporting my little company over the time. Well, since I have a few seconds left and you probably need some of my resin parts, decals or my super precision tools, here's the address to my webshop again. www.arnish.io A-N-Y-Z.io Now, back to the awesome podcast. Taking a technical break. Taking a technical break. Chris, Flash. Chris, ah. Chris is gone, leaving us alone. Because we're taking a technical break. If you're about to listen to this podcast, there's something you need to know. There's going to be profanity and controversial ideas, because we keep it real. If that's a problem, you might want to listen to something else. What's up, gangsters? Welcome back to the Sprue Cutters Union, our second episode of the new season, as it were. Episode 40. Unbelievable. Um, I am here with my compadres in crime, Mr. Tracy Hancock. Hello. And Mr. Chris Meddings. (laughs) 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 Yeah, this is actually our second start because we've had some technical difficulties as per the usual, but... We are also just a raggedy bunch this this morning. Well, morning here for me and sort of for Mr. Hancock. I've been suffering from the lurgy for the last few days, uh, so I will probably be even less coherent than normal. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're going to do like we always do. We're just going to soldier on, and it's just going to be whatever it's going to be. And So, yeah, we'll start with the usual what the fuck have you been doing, Mr. Meddings? Oh, shit. That's come to me first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell he was over there looking at something else. I I can, like, I can see that one. You know coming. that meme with the guy and he's with his girlfriend and he's like, ooh, something else. Yeah. I just finished one diorama and now I'm like, fuck that. I wanted the next model. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much a consistent state of existence for you, though. Yeah, well, it is for everyone, isn't it? I mean... I, I'm like in love with my latest finished thing for all of about twelve hours, and then I can't be asked to look at it. I'm on to the next thing. So, because for me, it's all about the doing, not about the having done. If you see what I mean. So, well, you just did and finished a pretty cool thing. That was all right. Yeah, yeah. indeed. It was the AFE Club um, Centurion Avery, which I did as the one at Cobberton Combat Collection, which is a little private museum in Devon. And this one was being lifted off a ship in Qatar, I think, in First Gulf War. And one of the lifting eyes on the engine wall at the wall at the back broke off, just snapped off. The weld snapped, and it fell into the dock. And so they pulled it out and thought that that's a fucking write-off because by this point, the chassis was already probably forty years old. 30, 40 years old already, so they just thought, ah, just get rid of it. And it ended up in a museum, but because it fell in the sea, it's covered in rust. It's like rust held together with paint, so it's really fun to do. And whereas <laughs> normally you get to, like, you put a bit of rust on it, really get that rusty, real it's museum, shut the fuck up. So I get to make it as rusty as I want, which is great. And then I add 
you know, it was raid the spare box time. <laughs> you know, like you think I've got loads of little bits I could use if I ever did a diorama, but apparently I fucking haven't. I really had to scratch yeah. around for shit to put in this diorama. Uh, I ended up buying the mini art um, T54 engine because they've got a T54 there. So it's a nod to that in their collection. And that's an amazing, lovely little kit. I can really recommend that. Again, um, oh yeah. <laughs> and the figure I sculpted of me leaning into the hatch with my butt crack out, which uh, is purely for the lols. And so I don't have to paint a face. And yeah, it seems to have gone down quite well. So I'm looking forward to taking it down to the museum, putting it on the tank. And in the background, leaning over into the hatch with my ass in the air just to recreate the uh, scene. It would be it would be good fun. So That's great. That's, and I've just yeah. started a Fine Molds F4 today. I'm three hours in, and I've completed like 60% of the assembly. It's brilliant. It's an amazing little kit. Haven't you built that one before? I built the uh, F4 EJ Kai, the Japanese one. This is an F4D. But which same. I'm building for the new decals I've got coming out. It's the same basic kit with a different yeah, nose gotcha. and different bits and yeah 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 but uh you know different options but um because i had a little couple little niggly problems with it last time where things didn't i didn't quite get them to line up really well and i had to use a little bit of filler this time i'm aware of it and no filler required just pop 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 nice very cool fine fine molds makes some really interesting stuff have you guys ever seen their injection molded uh seat belt sets got loads of them yeah yeah. they're pretty pretty much essential for 148 japanese aircraft yeah, I think those are pretty cool, and and I, I mean, to me, that's innovative. I don't know that anybody else is doing that, and uh, nope. I think it's, like a, think yeah. it's a lot easier than PE. Yeah, for sure. I actually haven't seen them, so how, how do you manipulate them? Do they come kind of preformed? You can bend them. They're the funny thing. Yeah, they're sort of pre-made. Mm. Um, you, I find you have to bend them a little bit, but they're really thin. The th- everyone talks about how really well, like f- uh, Flyhawk injection mold things that people didn't think was possible to injection mold because it's so small and really fine and really like sharp and clear in like tiny one seven hundred ship parts but fine molds are capable of that as well they do some really nice they do like um one three fifty styrene um uh, anti-aircraft guns for japanese ships they're incredible they're almost as good as the 3d printed ones so yeah they and the seat belts they got stitch detail on them and everything they're really nice yeah, I, I bought a I bought a set of them for the Hornet before I fucked up and had to put a pilot in it, and mm. they're pretty cool. Um, and they're yeah, I mean it's you know the the, the material uh, is thin enough that it's easy to bend in the places that you need to bend it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Talking of pilots, this one was the first edition. It comes with two pilots, so I'm doing it wheels up. <laughs> <laughs> So, Chris Becker, if you're listening, it's finally happened. This will be the last time it happens. Get over it. Right on. I feel his pain, though, because I did have to adjust a couple of the um, gear doors a bit because the shape... You know, like this, um, the F4 gear doors are in three parts. It's like the inner part, the outer section, and then the main sort of funny section that's a bit like a boot. Mm-hmm. The cutout in the back of that is a different shape to the one on the wing. <laughs> what the fuck's that about? So I had to fettle that a bit. But isn't, uh, if I remember correctly, isn't the outer door on a Phantom kind of like the outer door on a Tempest, where it has a piece, that piece at the top is separate, and they slide relative to each other when the gear folds up. So it can't have the same shape open as it does when it's closed. 
No, it's not that. It's um, along the back edge of the, the largest part of the gear door. There's a cutout in it, which is from the uh, actuator hinge, whatever it's called, of the, I don't know, what are the air brakes right behind the gear doors? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of those hinges pokes into the gear door, if you see what I mean, and there's a cutout in the gear door for it. Oh, yeah, but yeah. The I one on the wing yeah. and the one on the door are different shapes. Oh, so I get you. I, get <laughs> I had to you. fit a little, little bit, and I had to put like uh, styrene rod posts in to hold all the doors up because, of course, there's no lip to put them on. I because you. it's not designed to have clear clothes. Right. But there you go. I don't want to talk all day about that. So there you go. Yeah. Right on. All right. Well, since you're done talking, what are you up to, Hancock? Um, I have finished the weathering um, on the hull, lower hull, upper hull, road wheels of the scimitar. Um, I had previously put together the Master Club tracks and throwing them in some blackening solution and now I am gluing on the the individual pads uh, track pads with a little bit of PVA glue and then the complete lower hull of the scimitar should be finished um, and then I'll move up to the turret finish the weathering sculpt the figures do the diorama but I will say I'm really really um, really enjoying being able to go from finishing a diorama straight into weathering a vehicle um, mm. because my brain is already kind of had been working in that space. And because I had already assembled and painted the scimitar before, like I could just throw it on the bench and instantly start weathering it. So, uh, I mean, I found my groove really quickly. Um, I laid out oil paints to do the weathering and uh, digging through my stash of oil paints from, Art school and all. I found a tube. Drink. Drink it up. <laughs> um, I found a tube of Holbein Foundation Green, which is an extremely light, almost white, grayish green. And I just threw that on the palette to see what I could do with it. And as it turns out, the mixtures that I was getting using that color and raw umber gave me everything I needed to to weather the tank. So it's actually the first time I've ever used such a limited palette uh, to weather something, but it's, it's pretty amazing how um, the range that you can get with that, just using those two colors, like all the other colors that I put out on my palette are just sitting there drying up because I don't need them. Yeah. It's nice when you can just keep it that simple, right? Yeah. Because I don't know about you, but opening, like, I love oil, you know, working with oils. But the thing I dread that I do not like about it is having to open the fucking tubes. Because it it doesn't matter if I had the tube open yesterday. It seems like it's glued itself back on there and I can't unscrew it without a little pair of pliers. And then if it's like a really, if it's one that's been sitting in the drawer for a long time and the lid won't come unscrewed then you end up twisting the tube around mm-hmm. and it's yeah it's just never fun yeah i keep a little pair of pliers in the drawer with my oil paints and <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't even fuck around I, anymore i just i grab it and, and open the paint initially with it just don't even try i got a couple with no lids because they they don't dry out you just pull the end the, the dry bit in the end out it's fine that might be the way to go because I, I i remain stupidly optimistic and i always try to open it with my fingers and it never works yeah. and then 
and, and the other thing is it's like no matter how much you clean the neck of the thing <laughs> off yeah it's always got that like collar of of yeah. oils that have seeped out and it's and but it is kind of satisfying when you can peel that 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 ring off of there like in one little donut yeah it's yeah. like it's like it's like getting a really good booger out of your nose yeah it's so, exactly what it's like you know. it's it's just that kind of satisfying feeling it's, it's not even primal it's like elementary you know you're just like ah, totally. <laughs> Uh-huh. I got that. You like want to show it, right? You want it to show it. To, you want to show it to people. You want to show it to all your friends. But you can only really show it to guys. Guys are the only ones who are going to get a it. bottle of PVA. Yeah, a bottle of PVA, and you unscrew the end, and then like the spout, and then you squeeze it, and it comes up through the inner spout and out, <laughs> and it like goes, it goes hard on the end, and it's so much fun, like picking the PVA yeah. out. <laughs> it's right up. <laughs> It's not my favorite thing. Anyway, so there we go. We are literally still 12. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> doing it now. Like, oh, yeah, that's the shit. i tell you what's not fun. When it when the, the threads of, in your superglue bottle get a bit of superglue on that and you can't get the lid off that, that's mm. not no, fun. Not good. No. That's when I throw it away and open a new one. Yeah, pretty much. That's when I unscrew the, the, the main cap off the bottle and forget and knock it over. Superglue <laughs> fucking everywhere. I feel like if I have to take the whole lid off my superglue, that things are going very wrong, and it's probably time for me to step away. So let me ask you guys this. It brings up something I've, I've wondered about. And sorry to sidetrack. We'll come back to what Will's been doing. But what are the things that you have laying around your bench that are so kind of imperative that you have a backup. Mm. Like super glue is a great example. Like I've got, yeah. I've got, and to me, extra thin, I've got an extra, you know, always got a backup bottle of that. I've always got a backup super glue. I recently bought a backup pair of nippers because I realized if I ever dropped my God hand nippers, mm-hmm. then modeling would come to a halt until a replacement arrived. Yep. Cause I only have the one set. So, I, I actually bought myself a backup pair so that if something ever happens, I can continue to model and not have to wait on something to come in the mail. Mm. I don't know, man. I that's that, but that is a really good point. Like I can think of, of a, there have been times and, and, and I can't remember the specific thing I was using, but where shit went wrong and I was immediately like, Oh, well here, I'm just going to go over to my drawer of supplies and get my back up and kept moving and felt like the smartest motherfucker on the planet. Uh-huh. But I, I, I don't, the one thing I will say I have always is, is washi tape. Cause I buy those packs of MT washi that have like 10 rolls in them. So it's like two seconds. If I run out of tape, go grab another roll and I keep going. Yeah. I've got backup rolls of that too. Thanks to Adrian Davis. I should keep yeah. a backup of masking. Yeah, that's good stuff too. I should keep a backup of of uh, masking fluid because that stuff just goes bad constantly. Biscuit. Mm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what about you, Mattings? What do you have backups of? Uh, nothing, because I like to live life on the edge. <laughs> Generally, if um, if something goes bad, I use that shitty version of you know, like everyone's got that thing they used to use till they discovered yeah. something better. <laughs> so, like, if if my good nippers got broke, I'd use um, my good nippers are, are um, what you call them, uh, Zukimura uh, nippers. 
single-edge nippers. They're really nice. And they cost me a fortune. I had to get them from Tsukamura USA, but they're really good. They're like Godhand, but they're, well, they're, they're not quite as good as Godhand, yeah. but they're stronger. They don't break as easily. They're not as, you know, probably because the steel is, is different on the Godhand ones. They take a, I think they take, if to get a sharper edge, you sacrifice brittleness, if you see what I mean. Whereas softer metal lasts longer, but doesn't doesn't stay as sharp. It, yeah. Anyway, it, they don't it, break as easy. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an engineering uh, thing. I've tough. got an old pair of Tamiya fine cutters that I would use if they broke that sort of thing. Toughness versus brittleness. It's always a trade-off. My old nippers are so jacked up that they're, they would be very, very bad for doing anything fine at all. Very crude work is all they're good for. I, I keep them around to cut brass rod, metal rod, things like that. Yeah, that's why a lot of my old ones are jacked up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Brass rod and stuff with them. I, you guys are gonna you guys are gonna hate me for this, but I got I got super lucky because I had been using my Gundam Planet single sided nippers forever, and they never let me down. Um, but then I got gifted from like two different places a bunch of single sided nippers, so now I have like six pairs of them, including some OG God Hands and the Dispies and. Uh, the nine steps one that uh, our buddy Warwick Gresswell does down there at Hearn's Hobbies in uh, Australia. So I have a shit ton of them. Like I even have a pair that I use for clipping supports off of 3D printed parts. And, so you're 100 percent fit to nip. Uh, I am fit to nip. Yeah, it's it's really I really feel super spoiled. But I have to say that now of after a year or so of being able to do that that. I don't feel like my, you know, super shishi god hand SPN 120s are any better than the 30% less expensive ones from Gundam Planet ever were. Um, they, they, I mean, they're good. They're great. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think that they're better. I, I have noticed a little bit of a difference with some of the others. Um, you know, the SPN 120s are no doubt the sharp. They're, they are super sharp. And they do a they do a great job. So yeah, good stuff. Well, what have you been up to, Will? Since I interrupted that. Mm. Oh man, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So um, I have been. Uh, I've got stories, man. If you guys want to hear some stories, I got stories because I have been busy, as you know, Verschlimmer besserunging the shit out of the tiny little Armistang for the Musaru Cup. And yeah, let me emphasize tiny. Um, I, I will never build another 170 second scale aircraft. Fuck that <laughs> shit. You should build this Tsukimura Phantom on yeah, No, 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 no. Because here's the thing. All right, so somebody asked before I started this, you know, do you think you can do the same stuff that you normally do at 170 second scale? And part of the reason why I wanted to do this and why I was excited to do this was to try and answer that question for myself. And the answer is, yeah, you know, kind of, but I don't feel like I'm doing it very well because this is just a hot little mess. It's more than the obvious issue because the thing is fucking tiny and every little thing is little and, and manipulating the little tiny parts and the little tiny decals. That's an obvious thing, right? We all know that. But when it comes to weathering, what I'm finding is that 
it's hard to see. And I don't mean just in terms of absolute magnification. I mean, it's hard to see. Like, I see the thing differently because every time I look at this little motherfucker, I see the whole thing. Mm. And, 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 and when I want to only look at the wing and I only want to work on the wing root, it's hard for my mind, for my brain and my eyeballs to, to, to like get in there just into that part. And then when I start trying to do effects, it's hard because I mean, I look scale color and all that shit is just silly, but Scale mark scale, making is, is a real thing. Scale mark making is a real thing. <laughs> and so, and I really believe that one of the most important things with effective weathering is to be able to separate your effects. Like, you know, your chipping has to be very distinct from your dust and, and your sort of paint degradation your sort of global paint discoloration has to be very different very distinct from your mud for example does that make sense yeah for sure yeah i mean because if it's not and we see you know you've you, you guys have seen this if it's not the effect is muddy for lack of a better word like it just looks like a mess and when you look at the work of guys that are really really good at weathering i mean like you know look like mike martin um, uh, Yang Li Zhang. I hope I'm not Chris Sieber. Chris Sieber. And, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, Lester. especially especially him. All these guys. I've been looking at the work of uh, Miro Midzradsky. I'm certain I've mispronounced that, but that guy's aircraft oh, no, you mean, yeah. is uh, yeah. just it's sublime. You can look at at the work and you can identify each layer as an effect unto itself. Right, it's almost like if you were working in Photoshop and you said, "Okay, now I'm going to make a layer that's only chipping, and then my next layer is going to be only streaks, and my next layer is," and 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 I think that that's just to me that's that's a super important thing that will take you to the next level if if you're trying to improve your game, and that's just fucking hard when it's this small. I, I mean, because. Like like getting really diffused chips, for example. I mean, I'm lucky to get decent looking large chips, much much less tiny ones. And and so it, it is. I I mean, I got mad respect for Chris Sieber. I you know because I look at his work and I'm like, man, can I do that? And it is it is hard. It is super hard, and I am super tired of it. And part of the reason that I'm so tired of it is because last week, holy shit, you guys saw the pictures. So, all right, I got to tell stories. Mm. I got to tell stories. Can I tell stories? Tell stories. This is a classic example of exactly what I said. Fucking it up through trying to make it better. So, we know about Edward decals and how you can allegedly remove the film. And sort of the way that most people want to do that is to just grab the film and peel it off. And those are the only decals that I know of where that, that is supposed to work. But the other thing that you can do with Edward decals, and our buddy Shane Doak has made really good use of this technique, is you can wash the film off with mineral spirits. I mean, literally, you apply the decal pretty much as normal, and then you take a, a little stiff brush and you start dipping in some some regular hardware store mineral spirits and you start scrubbing and the carrier film turns into 
little balls of sticky snot. Kind of like when you're trying to, you know, wash sticker residue off your car window. And, trying to get oil paint off the thread. Yeah, exactly. And eventually it's all gone and you have nothing left but the color. And it is fucking phenomenal. It is so perfect. No carrier film left whatsoever. I mean, it looks like the most perfectly painted marking that you could ask for. Now, this is not a trick that's unique to Edward decals. It's actually been going around for three or four years. And I decided to try it on the Arma decals. And you can actually try it right there on the decal sheet. That'll give you your first indication of whether or not it's even going to be possible. Mm. And it totally was. And so I, I, did, I did it for, shit, I don't know maybe six or eight decals on this kit. Like I, I, I started, I put the insignia, uh, uh, the, you know, there's only one, one big marking on the bottom of this Mustang and I put it on and I did the trick and it worked really good. It looked phenomenal. And I was like, yeah. And then I did the tail numbers. You guys saw those pictures and, it, and those are pretty tiny little numbers and it's the film scrubbed off the tail numbers. No, it's just addictive. And then I put the little tiny decals around the nose. There's a bunch of them. You know, it's got some kill markings and some little, there's only a couple of little stencils. And I put the the big insignia on the top side and started to work on it the next day. And it immediately just went to shit. Like, I started with a couple of the tiny ones and immediately just destroyed the decal completely. So I thought, all right, well, I've got a spare kit sitting over here, so at least I've got spare decals. No big deal. Let me go over here and work on this insignia on top of the wing. And I start scrubbing on it, and almost immediately, olive drab paint starts coming off in big chunks. I mean, if they had, if I had been trying to make chips, I would have been stoked because... It just popped right off. And, I mean, you could see the MRP colors, you know, the zinc chromate primer and the gray primer colors underneath. And I was like, well, that actually looks kind of cool. But, you know, I'm not trying to do the battle damage thing. I'm like, all right, well, fuck this motherfucker. I went ahead and got all the film scrubbed off that insignia. And then I was like, all right, I have to repaint where this olive drab flew off and i gotta say i look sms is great paint but that's the only difference underneath was mrp on top was sms they're both lacquers but there maybe there's a slight difference in chemistry i don't know but it just didn't stay there and, and you know the scrubbing is a little you know medieval i admit that so i'm that may be asking too much of any paint i don't know but anyway I had to mask the insignia, which now looked pretty perfect, from my little touch-up spray painting operation, right? How badly wrong did it go? Oh, fuck. It went badly wrong because <laughs> I, yeah, I, whipped out, I whipped out my brand new bottle of liquid frisket because I'm like, oh, this is a, I, you know, I, I don't want to use tape. That putting masking tape yeah, on that will lift the putting masking tape on top of a decal is asking for trouble. Like oh fuck, a little masking fluid it peels right off. Yeah, well it did along with half of the decal. 
ripped it straight off. And, I mean, there was no recovery at that point. I, I had to, as you guys saw, I had to sand the entire rest of the decal, which would not come off, no matter how much tape I stuck on it. It wouldn't come <laughs> off. So I had to sand that whole area down and completely repaint. Yeah, I know it's a bit, like, benefit of hindsight and everything, but would it have been a good idea to shoot some uh, GX113 or something over the decal just to protect it before you mask it yeah, yeah maybe but as a rule what you put on top of a thing doesn't improve the bond underneath the thing right unless it actually melts all the way through so i feel like it probably i mean it yeah, maybe but yeah but of course at that you know I, I didn't have any reason to believe that my liquid frisket was going to be you know so destructive so but it but the story does not end there because this is what we call <laughs> This is what in engineering we call a cascading failure, right? Where the fix for the thing leads to new problems that further fuck up your life. So I get the thing like repainted, put a new decal back on there. And I'm like, okay, now I'm not going to risk this whole scrubbing technique. I'm going to go back to old school, spray some aqua gloss on top of the decal, sand it down, make sure that the film is blended in, can't see it, and then come back on top of it with my, with my ungloss. Works bulletproof every time. I've never had an aqua gloss failure. Ever. Like that shit is one of the most bulletproof, reliable substances in the known universe. And so it was like, I don't know, Thursday night, I sprayed the decals. They looked fine. I came back the next morning. I don't know what the fuck kind of evil gnomes visited my workbench overnight. But all of that aqua gloss that I sprayed looked like the bottom of a riverbed after all the water has evaporated and the mud has cracked. I mean, just a spider web. You guys saw the picture. Spider web of cracks over the top of the insignia, the paint. And that was the thing that was confusing about it because people immediately were like, well, was the paint that, that was on top of, was it not cured? Yeah, it was, but it didn't matter because the aqua gloss was on top of the decals, which had nothing except decal film, and on top of paint. There was nothing common to everywhere the aqua gloss was that would have caused a, a reaction is what i'm saying and it, it just that bottle of aqua gloss i think maybe i let it i don't know because i keep it in a separate little squeeze bottle and i think maybe it got too thick or some shit i don't know but i spent in the next day with a little tiny piece of sanding sponge and a pair of tweezers sanding all of that aqua gloss down to get rid of those cracks and it was miserable. Had you used uh, mineral spirit on that area? No. Nope. Didn't even go so close. To, yep. that, Didn't even go close to it because I was like, nope, not doing that. Not taking that chance. I mean, I've racked my brain. And the only thing I can think of is that that, that I just let the, that that bottle just, you know. Because I have a bad habit of leaving. My, I have a little squeeze bottle. I keep my stash of aqua gloss 
in the in a drawer because it's in a normal bottle with a screw top and i'm lazy as fuck and so i keep i keep some right there at my painting station in a little squeeze bottle which i never screw the top shut on because it gets clogged up and then it won't unscrew Mm. (laughs) so i just took to leaving it open so i can just grab it tip it over squirt some in the airbrush and go super cool right except i think maybe yeah not you had some evaporation that that Mm -hmm. caused it to viscosity to change Mm -hmm. yep yep and as i got in there looking at it closer i think that's really the answer because there were some places where there were some globs that had settled into panel lines and i spent the other day digging aqua gloss out of all those little tiny 172nd scale panel lines so how did it react on your it was how did it react on your paint mule (laughs) 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 yeah that's the thing that's the thing you know when you when you've come to depend on something and and just to be like oh shit that stuff works every time you don't reach for the paint yeah it's true And, and i did test the decal scrubbing thing elsewhere i had every reason to believe that everything was going to go my way and it just you know until it didn't didn't, shit just went completely off of the rails so yeah that's yeah that's an extra long bit of what i've been up to but there are some lessons in there somewhere i'm sure for uh our our listeners um yeah 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 sometimes yeah Sometimes yeah. shit happens. Just it just happens. There is no explanation. It just shit just happens. No, no way to know. So anyway, all right. So with that, then we need to stop running our mouth uh, about our dumb shit and let our sponsors tell you some cool stuff. Hi, I'm Scott, the creator and owner of the Scale Modeler Supply, Australia's largest manufacturer of hobby paints. Our premium airbrush-ready acrylic acca paints are designed specifically for use on plastics, with a comprehensive range covering all popular modelling subjects including military, aircraft, rail, auto, sci-fi and more. And not only that, but we also have a wide selection of essential hobby tools and now, infinite colour, our new range of water-based paints for miniatures. So to check out our range and to find your closest retailer, please visit our website at scalemodeler.com.au. So when quality matters, choose SMS Paints. All right, so now with that, now that we've heard from some sponsors who for some crazy reason continue to like us, we have some news items. Um, uh, yeah, we're this same. This beep, 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 yeah. Beep, beep, beep. We interrupt this program. This episode is going to be a little bit of a haberdashery, uh, smorgasbord, um, flying loose and fast. Um, isn't that You're not selling like wool and stuff? I guess that's. But it. But but doesn't a haberdashery sell a variety of clothing items? Do I have that definition incorrect? Not really. Okay. Well, so I fucked that one up. I don't know. Right. Let me just let me just get the seance to my Victorian great grand and ask her. 
<laughs> I have occasionally been told that I don't even understand the words I use. So there you go. But <laughs> and we won't even get into the discussion about scones versus biscuits, right? Well, at least you said scones. Right. Instead of scones. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway, I think, I don't know, we, we may have some burrs, we may have some stuff, but but later, this is important to note, here in a little bit, we're going to have an interview that you guys are going to get, uh, I think, a lot of enjoyment and a lot of information out of that that we sort of have been hinting at, right? We never really told yeah. them who it was, No, we, we have not. We have not dropped that no, at all. We, we said it was big. Yep. Air Fix. Uh, that's right. We uh, have got the Airfix guys under the hot lights in the interrogation room at the top secret union headquarters, and they did great. You guys are going to love this interview. Really, had a lot of respect for them for coming on and and you know sort of facing the facing the the lion's den, and uh, it's a good interview. So to be fair, I don't think they knew what we've been saying about Airfix before. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> We, but we were nice to him. We, yeah, I mean, and look, we I don't think that we've been unfair in our criticisms of Airfix. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit, if we have some time, about, about kit quality. But before we get there, a couple of news items. Um, so uh, you may have noticed in the old socials that Ammo has been announcing a new, quote, paint line called A-Stand. And I don't understand this brand name. Maybe somebody can clue me in. That seems like even when you account for the language differences, that that's a that's just it's a weird brand name. But nonetheless, maybe the A is paying homage to Allclad because here's the deal: people are like, "Oh boy, Ammo is finally embracing lacquers." Yet, no, they're not. This is just this 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 is. SSDL, same shit, different label. It is absolutely, so here's the deal, and I have this from an inside source that I know to be very credible because he worked with some of the same people involved with this. So Allclad was manufactured in the UK under license by a company over there that produces paint for a number of different people. For whatever reason, those folks lost the ability to do that. It could no longer license and sell the all-clad brand in the UK. So they formed a company called HR Hobbies. They were going to run with that and produce similar paint. But for whatever reason, that didn't work out well either. And so now they are having these same folks produce the paint that they were already producing with the all-clad label on it. And they're selling that in bulk to ammo, and that's what's got the A stand label on it. So it is still exactly the same stuff, which means it's the mix of lacquers, it's traditional lacquers, which all of the uh, all clad standard metallics are. They're high shine metallics or some other kind of lacquer blend that's got alcohol that we all know are a, a lot less durable, but still pretty neat. And then they have a whole bunch of enamels that are like their candy colors. All of their clears, K-L-E-A-R, are enamels. It says right on the bottle, mineral contains mineral spirits. That means it's an enamel. It has to be. And then they have aqua gloss, which is uh, a polyurethane acrylic. All of those things have existed under the all-clad brand name, even though their brand was, even though their bottles all say all-clad two lacquers. Lacquers was part of the brand name. Anyway, point being, all this rambling is that this is not new. This is the same stuff, 
It's just got the ammo, MIG, whatever label on it. And it's even more confusing because in their announcement, they call them all lacquers. So in the interest of trying to give you, always give you guys the straight shit, that's the news announcement about about this allegedly new paint. Not a big surprise. I mean, ammo do a lot of... Yeah, of, it's not Yeah, not a big surprise. I mean, you know, yeah. their paint shaker is um, comes off AliExpress. It's for doing makeup stuff or something, and they stick an ammo sticker on yeah, it. Yeah, which is totally so, cool. I mean, yeah, private label branding yeah. is absolutely a thing, and that's totally... A lot of companies yeah, do that. Yeah, so, no, yeah. no criticisms there. I just felt like it was worth sort of clarifying because I saw a lot of people who were super excited, mm. you know, and sorry to bust your bubble, but it's not really anything new. I mean, you know how people get with a new line of paint whenever it shows up, but it's not new. Not at all. So, yeah. Um, the other new thing, a couple of, uh, so, um, you guys, did you guys, uh, see, uh, uncle night shifts announcement about the changes to his YouTube channel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he posted a pretty heartfelt video, um, about the fact that he's basically just worn the fuck out on uh, doing episodes every week, which I totally understand. I mean, the guy was busting his ass and producing great quantity, a great quality, um, and doing it on a regular schedule. It was like, okay, it's Friday night. You know, it's time for the new Uncle Night Shift video. And now he's going to go to a more, you know, whenever he gets it done kind of a schedule, kind of like me. Um, and I, uh, you know, I have, I have a lot of respect for him just being straight up about that. I feel bad for him. He, I don't know for, for one thing, how he kept up such a high tempo of stuff at such quality for so long. I mean, the, the amount of work in that was fun. Well, I mean, it was his, he, he made it his, he made it his job. He was doing it, you know, eight, 10 hours yeah, a day. YouTube, YouTube really push you to do certain mm-hmm. things in certain time. Don't they? To you have to upload regularly. You have to be of a certain length to to fit the algorithm. So, I understand why he tried to keep to it, but it's just it's just too much. Yeah. I can't blame him at all for slowing down. No, no, and and I I mean I fully support the move. Not that he needs my support, but I, I you know you got to do what keeps you happy. And um, he you know I don't think anybody should hold it against him. Um, I think he's and 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 here's the thing. He was totally upfront about it. He's like, "Look, this is the deal." Total, to, to, you know, takes total ownership of it, and I got mad respect for that because we know yeah. that's not always that's not always the thing. I mean, he also addressed it before mm-hmm. it started happening, right? He's like, right. "This is what you're about yeah. to see. Like, this is mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. forward. This is what you can expect." Rather than, yeah, you know, having to come back later and be and explain away what had already happened. Because mm-hmm. that rarely goes well. No. I mean, he didn't wait. He didn't wait for people to be like, "What the fuck, man? Where's my night shift video?" I feel like we're leading yeah. towards. <laughs> <laughs> it... We we may be. Mm. I would mm. just say, there's a guy who has through hard work and helping people out and dedication built up so much goodwill. I really mm. can't understand anyone would have a problem with this. Yeah, and if you have got a problem with it, have a good look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, no, unless you're unless you're a Patreon, you're you're, you're getting it for free. Yeah. Know? So, yeah. Not, sure not, not that people aren't Patreons. aren't uh, capable of complaining about a free thing. Talking away. They do it all the time. Union at gmail.com. We haven't had any letters for a long time, so tell us how much we suck. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, look, Martin 
delivers. I was a member of his Patreon for a long time. And he delivers. You know, when he oh, says... Oh, I see. You left, did you? Because he changed his schedule. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no, no. No, no, no. I was trimming my finances last year. And that's why I figured I need that 10 bucks a month worse than he does. Because he's making that mad money. But I, he delivers when he says, you're going to get downloadable, full-resolution photography of all my work. You're going to get, like, you get to have a conversation with the dude. I mean, he delivered. And Absolutely. I, guess, I mean, all you, you have know. to do is have an inbox. Every day you yep. wake up and there's, like, there's a link to, to the new content, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. It, it, and the quality was was great, you know? High quality. Yep. And I love Very inspiring. Like, you, you mm-hmm. just watch it because it's, it's entertaining to watch somebody... Mm-hmm who has such a good sense of humor, has such a great skill set and, and doing all these cool projects, you know, he's, he's just got the, he's just got the, 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 the magic combo. I mean, he's charming. He's articulate. He's funny. He's got a sexy accent. And he's a good teacher. And he's, and he's a great teacher. And then on top of that, he happens to also be a really amazingly talented model maker. So, you know, we don't want him to go away, and I and I wanted to bring, I wanted to just talk about it because I, I, you know, look, man, he's got a shit ton of fans out there, and and everybody wants the best for him. So anyway, so another guy that we know and respect, who is a friend of the show, and this is just silly, but I have to say it, our buddy John Chung, who's been on here several times, this is news. <laughs> this is breaking. This is breaking fucking news. <laughs> Anybody who has followed John's uh, Scale Scriber page on Facebook or any of his wonderfully informative posts knows that he does all of his incredibly intricate scribing with a like a 16-penny nail or some shit. I mean, okay, that's not really it's true, a, but it's a, it's, a, it's a needle. It's a thumbtack. Okay. It's, it's a needle. It's a needle and people give him people give him so much shit about it because he acknowledges that when you scribe with a needle that it displaces the plastic and it lifts up these little sort of feather edges on each side of the trench then he then goes back with a super sharp exacto blade and trims those off and cleans it up so he's too I mean I look at it and I'm like bro you're you're just looking at how much extra work you're doing makes me tired just reading about it. <laughs> keep but, saying to get good scribers, but but and people and people keep saying and he's like and he is like talk to the hand. I don't yeah. need you know he's adamant about it. He is I adamant have about needle. it. <laughs> and, and you can't argue with his results, right? Right. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. So <laughs> so. Finally, a couple of days ago, he posted it and he got a new set of scribers and he's like, okay, you know, I get it. And and what I love about it is that he was totally like, he's like, yep, I don't have to trim the little edges off anymore. These little scribers do a great job. You know, I mean, you still got to use a needle for like scribing around a circular thing or punching a rivet or whatever. So you need one of those at your bench. But look, I... I just, you know, I love the guy. He's a fantastic modeler, and he's, and he's so so dedicated. And uh, but I just love that he was like, "Yep, you know what? This is better because true craftsmen are loyal to results above all else." 
Well, yeah, he's a no bullshit guy though, as well. Isn't he? Yeah, he's, absolutely. He's human, yeah. right? He's like, this works yeah. for me. I'm going to stick with it. I don't care if it's extra work. I get good results. You can go screw yourself, and <laughs> yeah. then somebody gives him something better. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Okay, yeah. I was wrong. This is better. But you yeah. can't argue with what so he did. So now we know. You know, he was just tight. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for someone to give it to. Yeah, him. I'm joking, yeah. John. Sorry, John. <laughs> and if it's working, you know, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So look, he's still I mean, use the needle sometimes. He says so. so. And, and and you have to. I mean, look, I I used one just the other day when I was digging aqua gloss <laughs> out of. I mean, sometimes it is the right it is the right tool. So yeah, so good on him. But anyway, those are those are my little news things. I just thought they were cool. And uh, so yeah, any. Any new other news or burrs? Uh, oh, one bit of news from me. Um, it's a bit business news, sorry. The decals I produced in 172nd and 148 for 13th Tactical Fighter Squadron uh, Phantom 2 F4Ds over Vietnam uh, have been printed in Zaporizhia in Ukraine and are on their way to me now by Decograph. Um, he sent me a photo of the post office. There's not an intact window in the post office but they're still accepting and sending posts from it. Damn. So, you know, he was like, I really, I was like, just give me, tell me where I can send the money because I want to pay you. He's like, no, 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 I just care that you get these and then we'll sort the rest out later. I'm like, you've got that backwards. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to give you the money. Uh, but the, they they do all the decals for, I think for Dora, for Wingsy, for Models Feet, for a lot of companies over there. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. It's Models Feet, not Models Fit, by the way. <laughs> I found that out. Modern sweet. Um, <laughs> and they're really good, really nice, really thin, really fine. And I'm looking forward to getting those. They should be here any day now. So if you've pre ordered, rest assured, they're on the way. When I take a pre order, I always deliver. Yeah. So <laughs> quickly, Chris, can you give us uh, an update on what's going on with the UK mail? Like, is it still just yeah, shit? They're, they're accepting international mail again. Um, and it's it should all be fine. But there's probably a big backlog because yeah. while they were post offices weren't accepting it, it's over here. There's two ways you can post something. There's the Royal Mail will collect it or you can drop it off at a Royal Mail company depot or you go to a post office, but the post offices are franchises. They're not actually owned by Royal Mail. They're owned by the people that run it. And usually they run it as a shop with a post office in the back and they were not accepting international mail, but because Royal Mail were, they just weren't posting it. They were just holding it. Yeah. Because someone hacked the Royal Mail International mail system and sent them ransomware. And it's really weird. It's not been on the news over here, apart from the odd like online newspaper report. Uh, I've written to my MP about it. I've written to the radio about it. No one's talking about it. It's really weird. Wow. So, um, yeah, considering like all international mail was pretty much stopped for a month. Yeah. I mean, I know we're not talking a couple of days. It was a month, you know. So did so did you have stuff that was just stuck yeah. there? I've at got stuff that yeah, sent one to Tracy that I'm presuming he hasn't had yet. Oh, holy shit! Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I've been in contact with you, and I've been in contact with David and Mark mm. um, about AFE magazine, yeah. and I, I understand like the the mail's just kind of screwed right now. Um, and this was on top of a month of strikes in December as right. well. Yeah, I remember that. So yeah, I, I just thought it'd be so, nice to, to give an update because I know there are people out there who are maybe waiting on a package for you or waiting on uh, um, magazines from Mark and David. And like, if you've been coming. waiting twenty eight days f- from me, then and you really 
don't want to deal with this anymore, let me know. Give me the order number and I'll sort you out with a refund and I'll claim for all yeah, the You know what? If, if you want a refund on a book that's for charity, you're kind of an asshole. But No, no. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, if you pay for something, you should get it. That's you, true. You've made that's a contract true. and I've got a contract to fulfill. So, And it's up to me which carrier I choose, so it's not your fault if it doesn't arrive. It's my fault. Well, listen, man, that's the straight-up way to, to handle it. Do keep when I only people... offer one carrier, if I offered a choice, then I'd blame you. <laughs> but, I <don't. laughs> but I don't. I only use one, so it's my fault, isn't it? I chose them. Well, look, I mean, you're, you're doing the right thing by by giving people that that option if they want it out. and But more importantly, to to, again, just keep people informed and be open about it. Oh, of course, but, the other know. option is I'll send another one if you haven't had it. Yeah. And I'll just claim for the first uh, yeah. one from Royal Mail. But whichever you want, whether you want a refund or you want a, um, a second one sent, let me know and I'll sort it out. You do want a second one sent because the book is fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I've still got lots left. So if you haven't bought it, buy it. Because yes, you do. Know, there's, there's people in Ukraine waiting for that money. Yeah, yeah now, actually, <laughs> now that the mail seems to be running a little bit more, uh, more stably, then mm. it shouldn't be much of a wait for it. People ordering now. No. So that's my news. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for updating on that. Over the world for sports. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you had sports balling last weekend. I we, we we had sports balling. Yeah, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah. We had the we had the Super Bowl, and it was quite super actually. Was it was a great. Bowl? It was a great game by any standards. It was a bowl of uh, something know, that man. he claimed was... to be tamales. It's not a ball, though, is it? <laughs> I mean, it's not a ball if it's not round. Bowl. Super Bowl. Well, stadiums. No, I mean, the thing they kick and throw. Yeah, I, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Well, it's a two thing. Americans versus one Brit. This isn't going to work out for me. Let's just yeah. carry on. Look, it's basically the same shape. It's roughly the same shape as a rugby ball. So, you know, just mm-hmm. say it. Just yeah. say it. Yes. Yeah, that was, yeah, I was about half delirious with a little bit of a fever. I, yeah, so I can't tell you a whole lot of details, but it was good. It was good. So. All right. All right. Um, what else do, what else going on? What else do we want to talk about right now before we kind of move on to the uh, actual meat of this thing? Do we want to talk about the art of tanks? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I kind of do. Yeah, I kind of do. Yeah, so, all right. Yeah, this is a little bit of, this is one of those things that we've sort of danced around a little bit, I guess. But I think it's, um, I don't know. I mean, look, if we were sitting in a pub talking between the three of us, we would sure as fuck be talking about Mike Rinaldi's delivery or failure to deliver these tank art books, right? We'd we'd be we'd be talking about it. Yeah, I mean it, it is uh, a topic of conversation. Everybody else is. You know? Yeah. Every, yeah. Everybody else is, and you know what? It's an unfortunate situation. Um, and I look, I was pretty neutral about it. I didn't even really pay much attention to it. I've you know got some of Mike's books. I was not one of the people who pre-ordered what it's Tank Art Two. Is that right? Yeah. And what's the and 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 just a brief rundown. You guys know this better than I do. What is the history of this issue, if you will? From again, like I, 
I didn't do any kind of pre-ordering because I, you know, I already had the books. But from what I gather, pre-ordering on the reprint of Take Art 2 was opened up like five years ago. And five years? Did you say five what? years? That's what I understand. Yeah, yeah. There are people who were saying oh. who who are saying that they. If they had had a child when they placed their pre-order, the child would be starting kindergarten. <laughs> yeah. Which is, that, that's a valid way to look at it, right? Like, that's uh-huh. that's a long time. Um, and I, I think, in general, Mike's run into a lot of trouble with uh, printers and COVID. And there's just a long list of unfortunate things that have happened. Um, but what people seem to be mostly upset about is just sort of the same message coming from him over and over again. Uh, it's, it's they're coming, they're coming, you know, they're, they're at the printers. Like it's just this constant, uh, list of the same excuses over and over again to the point where, you know, you sent out an email, uh, I guess yesterday about it and, and the books are at the printers. They have been, I think they've been printed and are shipping, let me actually get to the email here. Okay, the pre-order inventory has been shipped to him. He's expecting it in about two weeks, and then he'll be shipping the pre-orders out. So it sounds like he's gotten his first delivery, of, or he's getting his first delivery of uh, the reprint books sent to him right now. But as somebody posted in SMCG, you know, somebody questioned, like, did anybody else see this? And somebody said, this could be an email from yesterday or an email from five years ago because they've all been saying the same thing. Um, and I guess one of the things that we wanted to, to talk about is, again, we, we kind of touched on it with Uncle Night Shift where you like, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here's Here's how things are going to change. And he lets you know before it happens, and you feel like you've been adequately updated on what the process is going to be or, or what the changes are. And there's a lot of people who are really upset with Mike about, you know, there's supposedly new content in the book, but he's never shown anybody any new content. He's never shown anybody proofs from the printer. Like, there, there are things that he could have been doing to alleviate people's frustration about how long they're waiting and sort of underscore the idea that the book is, is really coming, but it's just five years of the same excuses over and over again. Yeah. I think, I think that this is sort of a, I I, I mean, look, I don't know. I, again, I was pretty neutral about this until it popped off in SMCG a couple of months ago. And, you know, somebody posted about how they still hadn't gotten their books and they were pissed and tired of hearing the same excuses. And it did not break any of the rules of SMCG. We had, you know, no no reason to delete the post, uh, but we monitored it very closely. I went out there and made a very firm statement to not allow this to get personal because that's the SMCG way. We, we stick to that. You can talk shit about somebody's product all day long, 
but the second you start talking shit about the person themselves, you've crossed a line. And and we just we have a hard rule against that. And you know, that thread was pretty, I think, as as good an example of effective moderating under the rules that we observe in the group as as you could have seen. And I guess somebody sent some screenshots and this, that, and the other. And Mike was not happy about it. And people got banned from his social media, from his Instagram, from people who were already paying to be on his Patreon, and told specifically that it was because they were associated with SMCG, with me, and... I asked Mike about it myself. I went straight to the source. I was like, bro, what's the deal? And he was like, yeah, this should have never happened. And, I, you know, I, I'm not really fond of airing dirty laundry, but this is the straight shit. And I think that this is just an unfortunate situation of somebody making some bad choices because shit happens in business all the time. Right? It, it, I mean, Tracy, I'm sure you've had situations at your restaurant where a supplier was late you didn't have the right pizza sauce or, or whatever. Yeah, we I mean, make our pizza uh, sauce, bro. You don't buy that shit. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> bad. My bad. Okay. Talking out of my ass as usual. But shit happens in business. And the difference, though, is in how it gets handled and how you communicate to the marketplace. I mean, you won't remember this, Chris, but Tracy, do you remember about five years ago, maybe it was, the kerfuffle over Bluebell ice cream because they found some uh, whatever it was, botulinum or salmonella in the creamery. Yeah. Did that make it to the East Coast? Yeah. So Bluebell is a Texas ice creamery, and people who love Bluebell, me, are fucking rabid about that shit. Like, I, like, look, if there was a pint of Bluebell on my side of the street and you were on the other side of the street on fire, I'd be eating ice cream. I'm just saying, it's that good. And Bluebell, like, was unable to ship ice cream for, fuck, I don't know, a year while they got their shit together. And it was upsetting. You know, <laughs> we need ice cream way more than we need have books on how to paint model, model tanks. But Bluebell was constantly in communication and taking ownership of it. No excuses. Everybody knew what the deal was. And I honestly, I just feel like that what happened with this book is a case of the opposite of how not to do it. Um, you know, Mike's comments in that email about social media and basically he told me that he didn't feel like the thread should have ever happened in SMCG. Yeah, bullshit. Sorry. No. Nobody gets protection from the marketplace. If you make the choice to isolate yourself from social media you don't get to be pissed when people talk shit about what happened. It's that simple. Sorry, I'm ranting. But well, you, yeah. you don't get to you don't get to tell people what to do, right? This kind of came up again. The reason we I think we're talking about this again today is because a friend of Mike's posted today in SMCG an email with reference to the past uh, a message sorry with reference to the past post. Yeah, and this is the and this is the email that he sent out to all of his customers. Yeah, yeah, calling people. No, he he added his own comments as well. This, this, some of this wasn't directly from Mike. The guy that posted it 
Although I noticed, it, I don't think he's posted anything else at SMCG. So yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know. This. I don't know. But... I don't know. But um, he said that people were keyboard warriors for bringing this up and that uh, Mike had had no right of reply and that Mike had been denied the ability to make a response and that it's all very well to criticize a company, but not when it's a small company and you don't give them the right of a response. But all along, he's had the right of response. This has all yeah, been on public forums. That's just complete horseshit. I mean, if Mike wasn't a member of SMCG, he could have joined to reply to it if he wanted. I mean, it's not like he's, but you know. Well, he was a long time ago. I mean, he right. he made a choice. I don't know, maybe four or five years anyway, ago, to just exit to Facebook private, altogether. Although it's a private group, it's not uh, a secret group. Anyone can go in there and comment if they join or whatever. I would have absolutely been over backwards to make sure Mike's join request was approved immediately if he wanted to be in there so that he could talk to people about it. We would have had, we uh, absolutely. We, I mean, I was, I, I was, I was bummed when he, when he left the group at that time, but he just, you know, he told me at the time he was just too busy. He was getting off of social media altogether. And I totally respected that. I mean, he, you know, look, everybody's got to decide where to prioritize their, their time. But, I mean, look, the, the bottom line is you've got the platform. We would have gladly had Mike on this podcast to talk about the whole thing had he, had he wanted to do that. I mean, I, have, I can't even count the number of times I've said nice things about Mike. He's a fantastic model maker. He's one of those guys that's going to go down in model making history right there along with Verlinden and Shep Payne and Adam Wilder. And I've always had a massive amount of respect for his work, but this whole thing, honestly, man, it's just it's just left me feeling kind of black, just gross, because I just feel like, you know, I mean, and that's before I even start taking it personally that people were blocked and banned just because they were associated with me. That's fucking bullshit. How do you know it wasn't because they were associated with me? <laughs> Mr. Ego. Well, well, I don't. It's I'm joking. No, I'm because, I'm it was ex- because it was explicitly said. I know. I'm presuming people I, told you. Take it's a joke. It's a joke. I know, I know. But I'm just saying, I mean, this fires me up. Because if you got a problem with me, come fucking talk to me. Well, I will have the conversation. The other thing that was bullshit about this guy's post today was like, he's basically saying like, you know, he was, and again, like this wasn't a post from Mike. This is a post from some guy who was taking it upon himself to say like, hey, you all need to calm down. Like He did say he was a friend of mm-hmm. Mike's. Yeah, he did. He, but yeah. essentially he was villainizing the people who are complaining about having spoken up and complained about waiting for five years. Like, Man, I'm sorry, but if you if you keep somebody waiting for something for five years, yeah, and yes, you, you pay your money, you take your chances, right? But after five years, you can't tell me you don't have a right to complain. You fucking can't. Like, it's people have the right to, to air their frustrations and, and wonder if they've been swindled or not. And and here's the thing, and I want and I want Mike to hear this if he's listening. I'm not deleting that guy's post either. Um And the same rules apply. Don't make it personal. There are going to be people listening to this thinking about me. Well, you made mistakes in the past because I did at one point when I did the resin business, I lost control of it a bit and I kept people waiting up to maybe six months for their orders. But they all got either their money back or they got their stuff. So it's things happen and problems happen. And I had a time actually when this has not been publicly mentioned before. 
but um, I had a book printed a long time ago, one of my first books, and I chose a printer in London that looked very respectable and looked like they'd done the right things and they sent me references, etc. And it turned out it was a con man. And he took the money and he ran. And I've never got the books and I never got the money. I lost all the money for that print run. Thanks to a couple of friends who helped me out, I managed to sort it out again and get the book printed. And the people that ordered the books never knew because we managed to get it sorted out in a reasonably timely manner. So they just thought it was a bit delayed on the print or something. So I know these things do happen and I know you can be defrauded and it can be, in this business, it can be the difference between actually printing a book and not being able to do it because you've lost all the money and you know it's that close on the margins and stuff um but it's the way it's been handled and this idea that people aren't allowed to talk about it and that you were basically told you shouldn't allow discussion of it on smcg and stuff like that that's not on it's really not And, and i mean look it sounds like he had some truly terrible shit happen i mean i saw something in the in the email about the books basically disappearing into a into a, 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 a warehouse in Eastern Europe, and it took them like eight months to recover them. Look, that's the kind of thing you should be telling people openly. And I get that it's hard. I get that it's a hassle, and I get that it's exhausting. But that's what you get paid for. That's what you get signed up for. And I believe that one of the most fundamental rules in business is don't make your problems into somebody else's problems. And that's honestly how it's come across. And, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Yeah, that was a, a really good post. Uh, and I'm just going to read the last the last line of it is, you know, this is somebody's response. If you want to find it, go check out SMTG and find the post. But this guy says, if you fuck up, own it. And remember that your supply chain is a facet of your business, not a facet of your client's expectations. Like, that's it, man. Like, in a nutshell. Like, yep. these are these are your problems, not our problems. You got to be transparent about it, man. You got to be like, hey, you know, I got snookered, or this is this is what's going on. They're stuck in a warehouse and blah blah blah. And, you know, I guess you take a chance on at a certain point being the boy that cried wolf, right? Like every every time somebody asks, you've got a different explanation of why the product's not in their hands, but you got to be open. You got to be upfront. You got to do it literally upfront. Like it's got to be, it's got to come from you before, before there's a controversy about why the books aren't there. Like, I don't know, man, it's just, I, I hope he gets it all sorted out. Um, and I know it's been not great for his business, but at the same time, man, it, it just wasn't handled well. Yeah, look, I want all this to end well because nobody wants to see a guy like Rinaldi go away. I mean, his books are great. It's kind of like the Airfix thing, you know. We've made no secret of, you know, some issues that we've taken with their quality in the past. But nobody wants to see Airfix go away. I personally want to see Airfix be successful. They're a great presence in our hobby. But look, the reality of this hobby, and really all hobbies, is that they are very small ponds, and the fish talk. And if you are trying to deny that, that's that's just not going to go well. It's just, it's human nature, and it doesn't take long for news to travel from one side of the pond to the other. So it's much much better to just be completely transparent, completely out front. 
And, you know, Mike may say, well, I'd try to do that. Well, okay, but somehow it didn't work. So I hope that he'll go back and examine his choices and how he handled this. And God forbid that anything like this should ever befall him again, but that he will make different choices in the future. And that other people who have sort of observed this from the sidelines will also take this as a learning moment and maybe make better choices. You know, that's the only way that something like this ends positively, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, again, like you don't want any as a small business owner, you don't want anybody's small business to suffer or or fold. No, you know, you want the best for everybody, even your competition, right? Yeah, I mean, the the problem, my big problem I have with this is that I've had people say they don't want to pre-order my books because they've had pre-orders they haven't received from other people, not just this, but from like Kickstarter things or what have you as well, and it becomes a real issue for everyone else do business when you you know uh, yeah when one yeah. business in the in the market gets a reputation yeah yep. i didn't yep. think about yep. that but i'm sure that's the case but i really hope he sorts it out i really hope he gets back on track yeah look that's absolutely the bottom line and i will say it again right here mike if you want to come on here and you want to talk about this absolutely the door is always open we're always going to be fair about that so Anyway, with that, speaking of people we're going to talk to, it's probably about time for us to get to the interview. I'm looking at the clock, and this is a great interview. It's about an hour and 40 minutes long, uh, but I think it's going to be a good one, and I hope you guys get as much out of it as we did. And So with that, here we go, Airfix. Hey guys, it's Chris, this time as Inside the Armour Publications, with a quick message to let you know that Models for Ukraine Volume 2 is still in stock and raising money for humanitarian aid for our friends in Ukraine. The book features modellers such as Jose Brito, Sean Diorama, Calvin Tan, René van der Hart, Sam Dwyer, Emilien Pepin, Franz Lubin and many more, building superb and inspiring models to help us raise money to help people who really do need it. Buy yours today at InsideTheArmor.com, on eBay, or from Bookworld, Starling Models, or other great retailers. While you're here, I'd also like to tell you about my new decals featuring markings for four colourful F4D Phantom 2s of the 13th TFS at Udorn Royal Thai Air Force Base. The set is available in 172nd or 148, and was designed with the help of retired United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Robert Bowers, pilot of one of the aircraft depicted. In addition to the decals, the instructions include clear and detailed information on weapons loads that Lieutenant Colonel Bowers flew with on missions during the Vietnam War. So head on over to InsideTheArmor.com today to get yours. Can't get enough model podcasts? Well, you should know there are plenty of other really good model podcasts out there, like our friends at Small Subjects, Built Sideways, Plastic Model Mojo, The Model Geeks, and many more. To find a full list of the amazing shows out there, go on over to modelpodcast.com. Welcome to the Sprue Cutters Union, Christopher Joy and Martin Ridge from Airfix. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about yourselves? Uh, Yes, so um, I'm Airfix's new product development manager. I've been with Airfix as long as it's been with Hornby Hobbies. Uh, So way back to 2006. Um, So I've sort of 
overseen the design and development and production of Airfix products ever since that time. Uh, yeah, I'm Chris. I'm one of the designers here. I, I joined um, about 10 years ago, uh, actually in January 10 years ago, so pretty much exactly. Uh, and yeah, so I get to work on um, on the new products that uh, Martin's sort of overseeing. Uh, we each, each designer kind of gets given their own product to uh, to work on particularly, but we have a conversation uh, across everybody to sort of refine it, but yeah, kind of take it from drawings uh, up until the final plastic. Martin, can you tell us a bit about how uh, Airfix and Hornby and the group works? Uh, yeah, so, um, well, Hornby Hobbies has existed, I think, since the 1980s. Um, it was originally Hornby Railways and Scalextric slot car racing uh, they were the only two brands originally. Um, in the in the noughties, um, Airfix was added, I think, in 2006, if I remember correctly, um, which was the first new brand to come to Hornby for a long time. Um, Airfix had been uh, part of the Humbrol group, um, which you may or may not know in the States is about paints and glues and brushes and modeling equipment mm, oh yeah um they had actually gone bust and taken airfix with it so um basically airfix was rescued by hornby if you like and it meant that we pretty much were able to to continue with production without a gap um but as is commonly known in known in the uk and in europe um under Humbrol ownership, Airfix had really suffered from a lack of investment in new products. So um, Airfix was kind of way behind the rest of the modelling world um, in 2006, relying on old moulds um, from the 1960s and 70s um, and hadn't really updated the product range and kept up with, with our competitors, which I guess was the reason that, that they went bust under Humbrol, I suppose. Um, you know, you're only as good as your latest product in some respects in terms of your reputation as, as a brand. So um, obviously when, when the brand came to, to Hornby, um, we didn't have a great deal of experience of plastic model kits. Um, I was actually scale development manager at the time, but I was, um, although I wasn't a great plastic modeler, I was... Um, I was an RC modeler um, and I was also um, a mad, crazy aviation enthusiast. So um, I had a private pilot's license. I was really into planes. So um, so I asked if I could take over Airfix um, and, and was given me the opportunity to do so. So um, here I am, uh, 15 odd years later, um, a lot closer to retirement, but still doing it. <laughs> So, yeah. So what was your plan when you took over? How did you think, you know, was the best way to proceed and revitalise the brand? Um, well, one thing, one thing that we were really experienced at at Hornby was CAD design. Um, and um, Airfix up until that point had really not used CAD design very much. They, they sort of dabbled in it and used outside designers. Um, to a very limited extent. Um, so, but I mean, I, you know, as I say, I was uh, 
at that time I was Skelectric Development Manager, we'd been designing all our products in CAD for the last decade. Um, so, so we were already really well versed in CAD. Um, we had uh, good tool makers lined up in, in China where um, Skelectric and Hornby Railway production was all happening. Um, I was uh, at that time frequently visiting China, visiting tool makers, uh, visiting uh, suppliers. So we we kind of we knew we knew what to do, but we didn't we didn't know everything about plastic model kits. Put it that way. So so there was a steep learning curve, um, and and really the plan was. We need a brand new range of up-to-date plastic model kits that, you know, and over over the succeeding decade, the 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 plan was is that we would eliminate all of the old tooling and and you know try and do a whole new set of products that put us back in in the modern age of plastic model kits really, um, and and we kind of achieved that mostly and, and got to the point where. Uh, a few years ago, we sort of had a modern range and were able to um, call the the older tooled products vintage classics, as you as you've probably seen. So so we were able to, you know, make a distinct differentiation between um, modern product and an old product, a nostalgia product, if you like, and, and a modern product. And, and if you look at our catalogue or our website now, you can see that there are these two distinct ranges of products. Um, and in more recent times, we've we've uh, we've realised that if we want a future, then um, we need to get young people back into the hobby. So, in the last four or five years, we've spent an awful lot of time looking at starter sets for kids, um, developing products that are easier to make. And, and you know specifically designed as a great first experience either for a younger potential modeler or for somebody older just just tell us a little bit of because you guys are, are, are it's it's a bit different in that you guys are part of a larger company and last I checked or knew Hornby yeah. was publicly traded right and so you guys are a bit different from your competitors in that you're part of a diversified group. And I'm just curious, like, how, how big is, is Hornby? How big is Airfix? Like, how many people work there? You know, what kind of, what kind of, of sales volumes do you guys do? You know, just, just sort of general um, business. Stuff. So uh, it's a bit limited how much I want to talk about that. I think um, it's always a bit difficult to know um, what the business would want us to say. I, I can say that... Um, here in Margate, in Kent, in the UK, there are about 120 people in the offices. So, so those people are spread over. Wow, that's yeah. That's, so they're spread over all of the brands. Um, we have sales, marketing, product development, finance, uh, quality control, all on this site. So there's around about 120 people for for Hornby on this site. Um, We've got uh, subsidiaries in the US, uh, in Seattle, um, as you probably realize. So there's a few people. There. No, I did not know that. We've got, um, we've got an Italian uh, or a, a European operation, if you like, that works out of uh, Brescia in, in northern Italy. 
Um, so there's a few people there. Um, and there's a Hong Kong office um, with probably about 20 people in it, um, which deal with our Chinese suppliers and toolmakers. So we are probably a business that employs 200 people worldwide, something like that. I think that makes you guys quite a bit bigger than a lot of your competitors, and that has to come with some advantages, I'm sure. It certainly makes us bigger as a as an overall business compared to other plastic kit manufacturers, probably, yes. I don't know that for sure, but, but I think that's probably the case. But, I mean, out of those... Um, out of those 200 people, there are only um, less than probably 15 of us that specialize in, in Airfix. So um, there's what we call a brand team, which comprises the development side of Airfix and the marketing side together. And we sit together in the same office and, and work together and talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> which I think perhaps a lot of development marketing teams don't in some businesses. That, that's um, a really key point. I mean, you know, there's often, very often a wall between those two disciplines. Yeah, and absolutely. The, the yeah. fact that you guys, you know, sit together and work together, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's not always been the case. I mean, this is something that we've been doing for probably the past five or maybe six years. Um, before that, we did have independent um, development departments and independent marketing departments. Um, so, you know, that's that has worked really well, I think, um, for us as a business, for all of our brands, because all of the brands work in that way. Um, there are other specialists um, for Airfix throughout the business. So, for instance, there's somebody in the um, in the purchasing team that purchases products from our suppliers specifically for Airfix. Um, so there are other people dotted around the place who are specializing in Airfix as a brand. Um, but it's only really product development and uh, marketing that work together in the same office and can therefore be cruel to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and so as you can imagine, between people and... Um, but it's, you know, it's all good. We're a good... We're a good team. We're a good mix of, of guys and girls, and and um, yeah, it's, it's all good stuff. Sorry, you mentioned offices in 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 uh, Italy and Seattle. What sort of proportion of of the business is UK in terms of sales, and what's overseas? Is it mostly UK, or is it really spread out? Or? Um, the majority of it for Netflix is UK. Yeah, and and the majority of the business as a whole is. Um, UK and and one of the reasons for that is that um, Hornby Railways is the biggest brand within the business um, and Hornby Railways is specifically uh, British outline products um, and because British railways are different looking to to the railways in most other countries um, sales of Hornby Railways are limited in export markets. Um, they're strong in in all our ex colonies, Australia, Canada, but you know we don't have strong sales of Hornby Railways in the US, for instance, because our trains just don't look like. But of course, we do have um, as part of our 
portfolio of brands, if you like. We do have what we call the international railway brands. So we have, um, have several brands. I won't mention the names, but I, we have several brands that do Spanish trains, German trains, French trains, Italian trains, which, which all look slightly different to each other. Um, so they all have their separate ranges with their separate brand names. Um, and most of those brands were brought into the business uh, in the early 2000s. Um, some of them were um, struggling financially, so we brought them into the, the Hornby umbrella because that obviously gave us stronger export sales um, in those markets that needed market-specific products. Who? What do you think the average uh, Airfix customer looks like? What's the, the average demographic? Um, well, you, you're probably aware, well, you, Chris, will know that you know, we go to Telford every year to the big international plastic modelling show um, to meet to meet our uh, faithful modellers <laughs> and our not-so-faithful ones. Um, I mean, the demographic, the demographic is older than we would like it to be. Because obviously, you know, you can't help worrying when your demographic, when your customers are older, because you know they're not going to live forever. And in order to maintain your business, let alone grow it, um, you've got to find new customers. Um, So you've either got to appeal to a new generation of youngsters, or you've got to steal market share away from your competitors. Um, I think we've done a good job at stealing some business away from our competitors by creating better products. Um, But I think it is really difficult to bring youngsters into the hobby these days um, because our hobby doesn't involve mobile phones very much. Um, And obviously, you know, it's hard to get kids these days to get interested in things that don't involve microchips to such a large extent. Um, So... You know, it's it's you know part of what we do is trying to find ways to do that. But but you know, it's not easy. What do you think the the secret is to doing that? Or well, I'm talking about secret. But what what do you think is the best way of bringing kids into the hobby? So we you know over the years we've tried some stuff with um, with schools, um, trying to get you know models into schools and modelling into schools. Um, We've tried that with um, Boy Scouts as well. Um, I don't know whether scouting is big in the States, but it's certainly still quite a big thing here for, for younger kids. Um, and we've had some success with that. But, um, you know, modelling isn't seen as cool by young kids. And, and I'm not sure how you how you make modelling look cool. Um by getting it in front of them, obviously, but but it is it can be quite difficult to do that. And I think a lot of a lot of today's parents are perhaps uh, worried about paints and glues and all of the paraphernalia that modelling requires. You know, there's so many warnings about safety on products these days that I think it puts some parents off and creates some difficulties there. When I was a kid didn't even think about whether the glue might do you any damage. <laughs> oh, yeah. I huffed that well, tube glue for years and oh, I'm fine. Oh. <laughs> well, there's a problem, I think, where um, we are now two generations away from the hobby's 
heyday in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, and so today's parents, not a lot of them were modelers. Their parents may have been, but, but today's parents weren't. And therefore, um, it's not an automatic thing that today's parents would, would try their kids with a plastic model kit and see if they enjoyed it. So it's a hard sell, I think. It is. It's a challenging thing for sure. I, I mean, the kids, you know, there's there's always a debate in the hobby about about what direction it's going, and and you know, because you've always got these guys who are like, "Oh, the hobby's dying," but at the same time, for those of us who are serious model makers, it kind of seems like times have never been better because there's just yeah, so much yeah. so much cool stuff going on. But in terms, in terms of the quality of the products, sure, the, yeah. So it's it's a golden age, isn't it? Definitely. But but you know the hard fact is none of us you know are getting younger and and so you know you guys are different from like the Edwards and and um you know some of your competitors who are really focused like on aircraft only or like rye field or. Take on, for example, that just really focus on armor. You guys kind of do. I mean, you're multidisciplinary. You got ships, you got aircraft, you got cars, and you guys are kind of known for doing like subjects that not everybody else wants to tackle. But do you see yourself like ever wanting to branch out, like getting into like sci-fi stuff? Because they say the kids like the Gundam stuff, and I mean, do you see yourselves ever going in another direction to to try and win some of the younger market? Maybe. <laughs> so there's, there's a couple of aspects to that, actually. Um, one of the things about um, trying to get youngsters into modelling um, is that some parents are not keen on military. Um, and, and that actually goes for some retailers as well, actually, um, because, because for um, gift sets and beginners products, we're trying to get those into major retailers, you know, chain, chain retailers. Um, but a lot of those these days are reluctant, especially with what's going on in Europe at the moment. They're reluctant to, to want to push military subject matter. So increasingly we are asked for non-military subjects. Um, not not for serious modelers necessarily, but for beginners to the hobby. Um, you know, if you if you're trying to uh, persuade a parent or a grandparent to buy a beginner's model as a as a present for Christmas or a birthday, um, increasingly the big retailers want that to not be a military subject. Um, and so, um, when we talk about designing, you know, entry level products. Um, it pushes us towards automotive, um, where um, it's not military, um, and and there are some other, you know, categories of products, small ships, things like that that we can look at, but that don't involve guns and bombs and missiles and and all of that stuff that that you know not everybody wants to uh, make their kids aware of these days. So, so from that from that point of view, there's there's a branching away from from aircraft and, and stuff. Um, but I guess you know, for the serious modeler, um, we, we've tried to be a company that um, doesn't 
just do the obvious. You know, we need to do the obvious because the obvious sells more and, and mm-hmm. makes us money. But in in getting an income from that obvious stuff, we try and use it to do some off, not off the wall, but less obvious subject matter sometimes. Spitfires pay the bills, right? Exactly. Spitfires <laughs> pay the bill. But it enables us to do a walrus or an Anson or, yeah. you know, the stuff that perhaps... Um, or organic, or so much, yeah, or organic, yeah, exactly. Um, that's my excuse, anyway. Uh, the other reason we do them is because actually we really like them, and, and I love the gannet, and they make great models. You know, one of the things in subject choice which um, we actually sort of like, you know, we like to do stuff that's really a bit different. Um, and really characterful and, um, you know, makes a more interesting model. You know, when when you see the pictures of the real thing and you think, oh, look at all that detail inside the cockpit and, you know, look at that navigator station and, and we can really detail that and there's loads of glass and you can see inside. You know, that's the sort of thing that says, um, yeah, let's do that, you know, because it just makes a great model. You know, even if you're not a modeler, it still makes a great model because you know when you see the final thing, um, it's a it's it's just a lovely model. Um, Spitfires can be lovely models too, but it's nice I, to I see something different on the tables at the contest, right? Spitfires and and uh, <laughs> you know, there's nothing new to us about Spitfires now. So um, yeah, they're great, and but but you know and and. You know, we're English, so we all love Spitfires, but um, and they're beautiful. But you know, we've done them to death. <laughs> well, one of the questions that I had for you guys, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, I think, is is in trying to you know you use your your core sales to be able to do something cool, um, and something different. And I wonder if you guys, if the one twenty four scale aircraft is one of those things that you've kind of taken a step into that other people aren't doing. Um, in terms of trying to make airfix the, you know, the create that market for you guys. I'm curious how you decide uh, decide on your subject matter for those 124 scale aircraft too. Well, and to add to add a tail into Tracy's question, why that instead of 132nd? Um, 124 um, sort of came along as as. I think Airfix, as far as I know, were the first company to do 124th scale uh, way so. back in 1970, I believe, uh, which was a Spitfire, um, unsurprisingly. Um, and I think at that time there was very little 132nd scale around. Um, and I guess we kind of took it as our big scale. Um, and, and once we'd established 124th scale, it seemed the right thing to continue it for us um yeah so uh, you know in recent times we've sort of tried to choose subjects that were a, a little bit different i think so um hawker typhoon um perhaps wasn't an obvious 124th scale model i don't know hellcat the same um but i mean we chose them because they had interesting detail um you know um the engine on the front of a Hellcat is such a, a, a lovely thing, you know, and, and 
the way um, you know all the cowling panels come off it and everything, and, and you can see you know every bit of detail of the engine. It's just the thing that um, that makes us want to want to create this model. Um, you know, what can I say? We're designers, you know. So yeah, I, got, I got to do the the Hellcat as well, and and I did I found that a overall more enjoyable design project than the Spitfire because of those things. Like as a you're not not so much choosing it, you know, just because it's the famous name of an aircraft that it's going to sell because of the name on it. You're choosing it because you know this thing can be made into a really nice model at scale. Um, I guess similar with the Typhoon, which had its uh, kind of nice um, kind of scaffolding-like framework that you built up to begin with, create these really fascinating, intricate models, which actually something like the Spitfire, because of the construction of the real thing, didn't really allow you to do so much. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Typhoon fan. Always have been. I, I'm I'm maybe one of the few that thinks it's beautiful, but it's also just interesting. I mean, you know that mm. that engine uh, that that thing is just uh, just kind of kind of crazy and cool all at the same time. But you know that was a man's airplane, and uh, yeah, absolutely, a lot, yeah. a lot of history, a lot of history there. So I, I'm. I'm curious, uh, this is kind of a question for both of you guys, and this will lead into some more technical stuff, uh, but you kind of touched on it when you talked about looking at the details and thinking, okay, this is going to make a really cool model, because I know that both in terms of of, of enthusiasm, you know, as, as, as lovers of aircraft or armor or whatever it is, that there are things that interest us, but also you have engineering decisions, you have cost decisions, and all of those can kind of form a, a sort of, of overall design strategy. And and that's true of any product development company, not just yeah. not just model kit manufacturing. And I feel like as modelers that that we at least feel like, okay, Tamiya has a certain design philosophy. Hasegawa has a certain design philosophy. Edward has blah, blah, blah. Do you, does Airfix, do you guys have an overall, overall design philosophy that you kind of try and, 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 and stick to? And if so, can you talk about it? Um, I would say, I would say, yes, we do, but it's, it's a constantly evolving and modifiable thing. Um, so uh, I, I, going to sort of give you an example you're probably all aware that we employ a designer called Paramjit um, uh, say say again a designer called Paramjit because he's he's been on social media a lot uh, yeah 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 I've seen yeah okay he did the um, buccaneer right he did yeah so he is a modeler and he and he came to us both as a man with a with a product design degree and and you know he is an active plastic modeler um and so um, it's kind of changed our philosophy a little bit having him on board because he thinks in a slightly different way to the rest of us. So, so what I mean by that is he, he's really conscious um, when he's designing the model about uh, how easy it will be to paint or not. So, so one of the things that he's kind of taught us a little bit is designing 
um, to make painting the model easier. Um, and, th- and that will influence the way that the parts are split, um, you know, uh, which details you might incorporate together or which you might split apart, um, how you might make an undercarriage fit into a model so that you can paint all the parts separately and glue the undercarriage in at the end, things like that. Um, he's perhaps thought about in a different way to the way you know other designers in the team have in the past. But one one of the things you perhaps I need to explain um, in relation to that question of design philosophy is that um, we've had um, you know we have a, a team of four or five designers you know. That's the sort of quantity of product designers we have in the team all the time. Um, But amongst those four or five designers, there is some guys that hang around for a long time, like Chris. But there's also, you know, a number of designers that come and and go again after a few years. You know, they enjoy their time with us. They create some great products. But then, you know, from a career point of view, they decide it's time to move on. So um, it's quite hard to maintain um, a specific design policy. Um, do I think we have one? Well, there is one overriding design policy, and that is every design should be better than any other ones that have gone before. <laughs> that's that's a good one. You know, <laughs> one of one of the overriding thing that we completely understand is that um, if you want to sell product, it's got to be good, um, and. You know, one of the things we've always realized as the development team is um, if you hand the sales and marketing people a bad product, doesn't matter how good they are, you're not going to sell it. Um, if you hand them a great product, they can be crap salesmen, but you'll sell loads of them. <laughs> it, you know, we, we kind of realize what a huge influence we have over the ability of the, of the business to sell the product. Um, Very much, is, yeah. Then people won't buy it. Um, simple as that, you know. Um, Maybe more so than with than with a lot of 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 more, I guess you could say, traditional or mainstream products. Um, I think model kits do have a way of selling themselves. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, and that's both to do with choosing the right products and and executing them as excellently as you can. Um, so I guess um, you know, in terms of philosophy design philosophy it is it is that simple almost how do we make it better that's our philosophy how do we make it better and we do spend quite a lot of time as a team you know as a, as a whole development team reviewing each other's designs looking at what we're doing learning from each other um, and that's not just about um, bringing new designers through and you know in improving their ability to cre- to create great models, we can all learn from each other. How, however, experienced we are, and um, and so we spend a lot of time, um, you know, reviewing what each other is doing. And, and, and for those of us, for those of us that watch the market closely and participate in it, it's undeniable that you guys have have been on a trajectory of continuous improvement over for sure the last five years. Um, and I, I mean, what would, what, what's, what's the secret to your success? I mean, what would you attribute it to any specific thing that you guys are doing? 
I mean, how, you know, what's fueling that improvement? <laughs> so um, you can't make a great product without great designers. Um, but you do need some other stuff, actually. Um, so you do need great tool makers um, and you need a great manufacturer. Um, and at the other end of the, of the process, you need uh, great research as well, actually. Um, you know, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like uh, I don't know, cooking a meal. Um, if one of your ingredients is a bit rubbish, uh, it can spoil some other great ingredients, I guess. And, Very um, true. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, every aspect of the whole process needs to be excellent. Um, and that starts with choosing the subject, moves through the research stage, through the design, tool making, manufacture. Um, and if any of those stages are less than brilliant, then your product's not probably going to be fantastic. Very much true. And again, with, with scale models are, are kind of a different animal than a lot of other product development disciplines. Um, so de definitely true. And this is going to skip ahead to something I was going to ask later, but since we're in it, um, my, my impression is that you guys have, have made some changes in your tooling and molding programs that uh, are pretty significant. Um, I, I know I watched uh, a pretty cool video that you guys did with uh, a local uh, tool and die maker and a molding shop that's doing that's going to be doing the new 124th Spitfire. And so it seems like you guys are kind of coming back domestic, whereas if I understood right, you used to do a lot of production in India. Um, is, is all that correct? And can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yes. Yeah, so... Um... Our main manufacturer is in India. Um, they are manufacturing using molds that are made in China. Um, we have experimented recently, as you know, with bringing some manufacture back to the UK. Um, we don't have any intention of bringing all manufacture back to the UK. Um, it's too expensive for lower price point products. Same over here in the United States. It's just virtually yeah. impossible. So, so it works for us for the higher price point products. Um, and I think, um, you know, we tried it with the Spitfire. And, and a lot of that was about um, the idea that this great British aeroplane model should be manufactured in the UK. Um, and, and it's, you know, there's no enormous difference in the quality of, of the product that we get from, from the UK or from India or from China for that matter um so you know we are sort of like uh you know we're not centered on one place if you like in terms of either you know tool making or or manufacturing um all of the molds have been made in china for all of our time with airfix actually we haven't made them anywhere else um but um just like anything else, um, you know, if you, if you if you find a good tool maker and stick with them, you can, you know, by demanding better all the time, gradually improve um, what they're doing for you. Um, it takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it does. You know, very very <laughs> gradually, 
they they you know understand better what you're looking for and find ways of achieving it um you know and and you know we've lost count of the times that we've been back and said i wish you could make those panel lines finer and sharper (laughs) yeah there's a lot of model makers who who would agree with you and and, you know and, and when people say you know oh airfix don't do it quite as well as whoever else you know we are so aware of that um <laughs> but, but it's not as easy as you probably imagine to just go and find somebody who can do it better um, well it's, it's i i can totally sympathize with that i didn't, i didn't mean to cut you off but I, I i think a lot of people don't realize that how much more complex a, a scale model is as a manufactured product than your average consumer product. I mean, Chris, I'm sure you can relate to this. The tolerances on a mouse or, you know, I mean, even automotive injection molding, the tolerances there are not nearly as tight or demanding as they are on a model kit that's got 300 and some odd pieces. And the, you're also asking within within the molds, like you're asking the mold to do some like, a, an incredibly complex amount of things, aren't you? Because you're both trying to fill some really large areas. Mm-hmm. Yes, very uh, different sizes, different shapes. Yeah, some incredibly tiny areas, like they're just just ridiculously small bits that you want to fill just perfectly and not let any of the plastic spill out uh, of those little cavities and fill some big cavities at the same time. Um, it becomes this real like dark art of how you balance a tool to be able to ask all of that from it, um, which I can see yeah, why it is incredibly difficult. We're, like I've always feel a little bit jealous of the um, the scale modeling companies that have an in-house uh, mold shop, like tool shop, yeah, so they can just sure. go next door and ask questions. And, and it's it's not quite that simple uh, here, but we've obviously now had a long quite a long relationship with the tool makers that we use it's got it's got a bit easier but yeah it is quite an art well just getting those guys to understand what the demands are uh, you know uh, and how they're different from the average consumer product you know those little things that model makers hate like flash or mold halves being misaligned and why that makes a much bigger difference than it does if it's parts of a refrigerator it's yeah. you know just yeah. getting them up to speed there mm-hmm. Two tenths of a millimeter is is a massive deal for us. Uh-huh, uh, absolutely, it really isn't for a fridge. <laughs> well, Chris, I've got a bunch of of nerdy technical questions for you because you know we share some common background. I've got a mechanical engineering and a product development background and some injection molding experience. So I'm curious about you. What's your? Are you an engineer? Are both you guys engineers? And how did you come to be a model kit designer? I mean, is this, did you come straight out of school? Do you, was it a love for airplanes? I mean, how did all this happen? Well, I think actually, well, Martin was a, was a draftsman before getting, becoming a manager. <laughs> well, I, I'm old enough to have uh, been a product design student before CAD. Um, so um, in, in my time as a, as a product design student, it was it was quite art based actually, um, you know, a, a proper mixture of art and engineering. So, um, which I think actually is is a is a good basis for for doing this stuff. 
Oh, it absolutely is. I came at the end of probably the last generation to have to take pencil drafting in high school. So yeah. I can relate. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, without getting too deeply involved in what I do, because I want Chris to speak, um, <laughs> it, because because as a as a development team, we're not just creating the plastic parts, but we're also obviously developing instructions, pack artwork, you know, all the things that makes the whole product desirable. Um, it's huge. It's hugely helpful to be uh, somebody who has a background in in uh, visual arts as well as um, engineering, um, because you know our, our product as a whole thing, including its packaging is is a blend of both of those things so um you know part of our success revolves around packaging the product in a way that makes it impossible to ignore on the shelf or, or online or you know um so it's more than just the model isn't it it's more than just the finished model so um you know the, an awful lot of the work that we do involves um you know making it a desirable product putting it in a in a box that makes it irresistible, if you like. Hey, box art is a thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, I, uh, I did product design uh, as a degree, which kind of was as, as broad as it sounds like it would. Uh, but I, I guess probably the, um, the the best thing that it was teaching you to make would be something like a toaster. You know, so you got you got your electronics, you got your mechanics, you've got your aesthetics. Uh, how to fit all of that into a package um, uh, was the sort of thing that I studied for four years. And actually, did did for the first term, they didn't let us near a computer. Everything had to be done uh, by hand with pencil and paper, which I was pretty shocking at, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a good starting place. Um, and then, yeah, then this was my this was my first job out of uh, like out of uni. I, I did a did a bit of a job in um, at for uni halfway through uh, for a company that designed streetlights, um, which was uh, incredibly dull, uh, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and it was very like, and it, but it helped me appreciate just how enjoyable this job is because that job uh, made me question the like, well, it made me realise the fragility of life and how if I died on the drive home, I would have just wasted my day. Um, <laughs> that's a big moment then, in a young man's life <laughs> it was a big moment and I still have months left to go so what, what on earth am I going to do um, but now I don't I don't have such an existential crisis here uh, I quite enjoy my work which is great uh, I, I know how bad it could be um, <laughs> so so I'm able to forgive it for <laughs> uh, so, but I, I guess as a like just as a like a, a kid, I was always fascinated with how stuff worked, and, and quite probably quite a lot of us kind of model makers, maybe a degree of that. Like it, you're interested in engineering, like big machines, little machines, um, and so I was always fascinated with how things would work. And I was fortunate enough to grow up near uh, uh, Farnborough Airbase, which would always have a m massive air show every year. And my dad very kindly took me to that. Um, and then when I got old enough, I looked at the ticket prices, and I really thanked him. Uh, a lot for taking me because it was not cheap uh, but it, it fed my like interest in engineering but I wouldn't say that I am a like an engineer as such because now I, I am pretty much purely based in CAD uh, but I guess that interest has certainly helps translate 
the stuff from real life into a scale version of it. They've got a bit of a better idea of why it looks like that and then how to decipher it a little bit more. Well, and look, you don't have to have an engineering degree to be doing engineering work. Uh, a lot of a lot of what we learn as as mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, whatever, is on the job training. Um, you know, you go through four years or six years, like I did, of engineering school, and they don't teach you the ins and outs of injection molding. You know, you don't learn that until you're standing on the floor of an injection molding plant. And the production manager is yelling at you because of some dumb shit you did, <laughs> make, making a, a rib too thick and making a sink mark that you're claiming is their fault. And they're saying, no, that's you, idiot. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't learn that stuff until you until you hit the real world. And I, I don't know, I think just looking at what you do, I, I mean, I've worked with it's what we would call industrial design over here. And I've worked with a lot of those guys and. I think you've got a super cool job, Ben. I, I can't, I can't deny. I think that uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little jelly because you kind of get that intersection of, you know, has to look good, has to assemble properly, um, you know, has to have some engineering to it, um, you know. So it's good stuff. And yeah, I think, I think for like, I um, I did try and leave at one point. I went and did uh, uh like some other charity work, and I. I, I quickly realized how much I missed making things. Um, and as much as I like people, uh, it wasn't as interesting as making things. Yeah. Um, so I came back quite quickly. Uh, and uh, where was I going with that? Um, oh, the, the, yeah, the enjoyment. So, like, I, I love problem solving. That's the thing that um, makes me feel satisfied at the end of the day, is starting the day, like, how am I going to how am I going to recreate this? And then how am I going to split it up? And how on earth is it going to be molded? And trying to find the most efficient way of of like doing all of that, um, it just I get such great satisfaction from. Even though it, like it could feel repetitive because it's basically doing that every day, but each day each problem feels a little bit different. Um, and also, hopefully, each time you maybe you think, "Oh, I did that a little bit better," which is just very very satisfying. Uh, Absolutely, so it is. Made me think of something, but I can't remember what you said now. Oh, well, think about it while I ask you this, because um, I, I mean, I, you know, if you work with engineers, you know that we geek out over the details. So I, I'm, I, I've, I'm super curious. What, what software do you guys use to do your CAD design? Um, so we use a program called Creo, which used to be yep. Pro Engineer. Pro Engineer. I grew up on Pro Engineer back in the day, so I feel oh, your great. pain. <laughs> yeah, it's it is so. A lot of the designers here um, what used to, not, not anymore, but used to all come from like one uni, which is Loughborough, because that was the last uni hit in the country that was still teaching Creo, uh, wow. because it is such a pain. <laughs> and everybody else had moved to SolidWorks because it is like yep. a way more user-friendly program that does what you want it to do. Um, and I knew SolidWorks for, for a year. And I was like, this is wonderful. And then I came back to Creo, even though I'd done it for like years before. And I was like, how do I make a box? Like, I can't, everything, <laughs> nothing's in the right place. Why like, it's so overcomplicated. Um, but it's now second nature. Like you get, you know, doing it day in, day out for 10 years. You, I, it's the only way I think now. And I, I've tried to pick up other CAD softwares, um, especially like going home and wanting to make something at home and just getting some free software. And it's the most infuriating thing because everything's a little bit different. It like, is, it is, and it, and it comes down to like the most to to, 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 to the to the minutia. Like, 
Like there are certain things in pro engineer that you could count on. And then, you know, like I use fusion 360 and there are days when I'm just like, why doesn't it do this simple thing? That's automatic in, in a, but you know, they each have their sort of audiences, I guess. And, and well, now, um, because no other other unis teaching the software we use, all the new guys come have to do a little um, like conversion course. Yeah. Uh, and but I think the hardest for them because they like this should be easier, <laughs> right? <laughs> so you haven't asked the obvious question, which is why have we stuck with Creo and or Pro Engineer? Well, I, 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 I mean, it is, it is a great question, and I am curious. I can imagine what some of the answers might be, but yeah, tell me. Chris, why have you stuck with Creo and Pro Engineer? They just want us to suffer, uh, really. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's, 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 there's people don't join, and I still have a job. Um, if, if they made it easier, then I might lose. Like, they might find realize that other designers are better, uh, but not not on this level. Um, now, I guess I guess a big part of the issue is that all of our back catalog is in this. Um, yeah. And so now we just have you know thousands and thousands of files. That Le- legacy data that. is is a major shackle. Yeah, and, and so making that change would be so difficult. Also, even like, and I guess. Changing software would be a, a really long learning curve, again, for all of us designers. And the products would take twice as long to begin with because we'd all be trying to do it the old way. Um, so those things that are just are hindrances. As you say, they're like shackles that make the idea of changing. Just they like definitely, the yeah, they, they definitely can. And it goes, it can anyway, go even further because I, I know that, that at least back in the day that, that Creo, Pro Engineer, whatever you want to call it, part of its attraction for enterprise level systems was that it wasn't just about doing the engineering design. That, that data could flow all the way out to purchasing. And mm-hmm. there were companies that took, you know, that was what they tried to sell it as, was this, inter- was this complete enterprise solution that would cover you from the very beginning to the very end of everything. Do you guys use it that way? Uh, we don't actually. Um, uh, one of the reasons we chose Creo in the first place, way back in the mid nineties, um, was actually its surfacing ability was mm-hmm. way ahead of yep. everything else at the time, um, and we needed really good surfacing. Yeah, for sure. Um, when you're trying to, you know, one of the things that's unique about designing our products is that um, you have to replicate in miniature the shape of the real thing. Um, you better, or somebody's going to harsh you on Brit Modeler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and if you can't persuade the software to make that shape, um, if you're designing a toaster, well, you just do it a different shape, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you can, yeah, you can get away with it. We have to find a way of creating those surfaces to replicate the shape of the real thing. And, and so, you're trying to recreate stuff that was beaten by hand over a wooden exactly. buck, yeah. and, and yeah. computers don't like that. Not at all. There's so many shapes, and it's got even worse now that we're doing scanning. Like, I, you mentioned one of the, like why has it got better in the last five years? And I think one of those many elements is is now we're doing so much more three D scanning. So like we're just dead confident that the the outside surfaces are are bang on. But it hasn't. I don't think it's sped up the design process at all because now I know if it's 0.2 of a millimeter out. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, whereas when I was just basing it on drawings, so there are some areas that you wouldn't really know because, as you say, those are bits were bashed by hand or edited and, and changed in the in the workshop. Um, but now I'm, I'm like, 
we'll spend an extra day or two trying to remodel this little bit just because it's not quite curving. <laughs> and and you know, at some point, you've just got to like snap out of it. You know, yeah, you just, you just you know, to, yeah. in those little minute details and like, no, it's rubbish if I don't do this. Um, and then when it, you get the prototype, like, oh, I can't tell. Uh, <laughs> exactly the same. Um, but they, that's like the, the degree that you're demanding of that surfacing on some, some products is, yeah, absolutely screws through your mind. Absolutely. I can completely sympathize because I do some of my own design work for my own 3D printed parts. And it's real easy to forget that the thing you're looking at on a 27 inch screen is, you know, not even as big as a, as a flea. And yeah. you really just have to stop being silly. I mean, you this know, I'm a model of a Bic Biro. Yeah. Um, I love that. Yeah. I watched your, I watched that on your video where you talked about having the model of the pin right there yeah. next. That's brilliant because that, I mean, yeah, that's a constant in, reminder. In just on the outside. That's so very small. Yeah. And it reminds really, me like, yeah. oh, this is time. Like, I need to chill out. This, it looks fine. <laughs> I was going to say, I've done a bit of design on photo edge and it's easy when you're zoomed in at 3000% to put all this detail on yeah, yeah. zoom out and realize none of it's going to etch because the minimum you're looking at is probably 0.1 of a millimeter or 0.2 of a mil or something like that. And it's great to get in there and design it, but when you zoom out and realize how big it actually is sometimes it's kind of pointless. Yeah. It's like, oh, I just wasted that last hour really, but <laughs> <laughs> so that's fine. <laughs> so going back to going back to design details, are you guys, designing the sprue or do you leave that to the tool makers um it's a good yeah it's a good question we uh they do the majority of it for sure um but it, it is quite a back and forth uh, relationship we have with that part of the whole product so um like none of us are injection molding experts you know we've, we've learned a lot over the time that we've been here but we're not in like the mold shop we're not making them that's not our. We're, like, we're good at design for injection molding, but we don't know about designing injection mold tools. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that's two sort of completely different disciplines because the part itself has to work. It has to fill correctly. There are rules, you know, like those rib thicknesses or whatever to avoid sink marks and all of that stuff. But then there's the tool itself and how the plastic flows and cooling and computational fluid dynamics and yeah it's a whole different thing whole different thing um so we and i guess it's it's been evolving how we do it but um we've always tried to like say these are the parts that we would like near each other um for the sake of the final experience you know it, it it's a nicer experience if you can pick up one frame and build a whole cockpit from it absolutely I, I imagine that perimjit has some some comments about that because yeah. <laughs> he knows he knows that if you're building the cockpit you don't want to have to reach across three different sprues just to, to do that sub assembly exactly like and especially on the bigger kits that can become so infuriating um and so we'll ask them this is like our ideal and then they'll send us some drawings um but then we'll go through an editing process of that um part well, one thing is to make it fit in the box which i have been foul of before i <laughs> i didn't I, we, we've always had this, um, I think Martin's forgiven me, but we've always had this like <laughs> maximum box when we're, when we're asking the mold makers to, to plan out because we know what box it, we want it to go in and the series and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I gave them the maximum box size and they sent me back the drawings. I'm like, oh, great. These are all well within the maximum box size. Wonderful. 
Uh, and then we got them all and we tried putting them in the box and it stacked like a third too high. So now, and, and, and what it was, was these, all these frames were probably, they're just over half the size of the box. Like utterly, so you couldn't put two next to each other. So you could put two next to each other. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I'm, I'm ready. So I, I'm, it's not happened again since because I definitely felt like a, a right idiot that day. Um, but there's, so there's those little things like we, we get it, we get the their drawings. You know, okay, actually, if we if we jiggled some of this stuff around, um, it would fit a lot better. It would be a little bit more efficient. Uh, but then we've also, I think, sometimes got you could go too far that way of getting all the bits you want on the same frame. And now you're trying to ask, like we mentioning earlier, too much out of that one tool. And so if you're wanting some big bits and some little bits, because those will all be assembled at the same time, um, actually you make a mold that's really, really difficult to fill properly. And while you might actually get some good test shots from it, when it goes into production, you're going to start having a whole bunch of nightmares that like, yeah, they, the, the guys were able to make 10 great shots, but when you're trying to make a thousand great shots, uh, it starts to fall apart. Um, and so there's, that's a, a conversation that or we're a hundred thousand or, or a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there's like a, a degree of the, I guess getting used to each other and also, uh, them as like selling something to us. They want to please us. And, um, but we have to keep saying, no, what we want you to say that what we've given you is bad <laughs> so that we can make it. <laughs> you know, like, don't, don't just make it work. If, if we can learn to do this better then like, tell us it's, that, that'd be great. And that's a, a relationship that I think we're building quite well now for the last few years. So it's like, tell us what we need to hear, not what, yeah. Yeah, not what you think you want us to hear. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. We do spend a lot of time changing the position of feed gates and the position of ejector pins yeah. because, yes. you know, it, they often, the toolmaker will position those to mould the parts best. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Are you, are, are you, you about, about how, you know, you actually go about the process mm. of, of cutting those parts off the frames and putting them all together. So, yeah. so that, you know, there's quite a lot of effort goes into that part of the mould design. Um, we to and fro with comments. Yeah, it's really a catch twenty two because because yeah. the molding requirements may be completely at odds with what the model maker wants to see. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. guys guys will grumble, why did you put the gate here and why did you do it this way? And I mean, it's yeah. But I'm curious: are you guy are your toolmaker or your molding guys, your toolmakers, using any computational tools uh, to to do the flow analysis, or is that all just Seat of not the sure pants. we know that actually. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure I can answer that. I, don't, I actually don't know. Yeah, we've never <laughs> seen it. Like, that's not stuff we've been given yeah. um, to look over. So, I mean, if they're not using it, then they're absolute geniuses. Like, <laughs> and and they, may, they may not be. I mean, I, again, it's you know, who knows what's 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 happening in China? But a popular tool over here used to be one called Moldflow, and mm. that was also, I think, you know, part of the integration with Pro Engineer. And, and, you know, that was the big deal was, you know, trying to figure out how to optimize tooling. But anyway, that gets us pretty far off into the weeds. But I have a I have a curiosity question. One of my buddies asked me about this and I honestly did not know the answer. But my curiosity ramped up even higher when I was I was listening to um, a YouTube video, Chris, that you were on uh, not too long ago. And you were talking about the fact 
that you were creating the rivet pattern as a separate file that you were then combining with the actual structure of the, of the model. And I thought, you know, that's, that's pretty brilliant because, you know, rivet counter jokes aside, that's a really significant part, right. Of, of, uh, of an aircraft model. And not only are people going to have things to say about how many and how deep and what shape they are, but, but there's the, the absolute reality of the injection mold. And, and, and my buddy was asking me, how do they put those in the tool? And I, I had to admit that I, I don't know because I know you could burn them in, but yeah. whether you burn them in or you put them in as a, as a separate pin or a whole, you know, thousands of separate little pins, that's a tiny, tiny little pin in the tool. So yeah. how does it happen? Uh, um, so f- first, I guess uh, I have to say because uh, I, I feel a bit guilty, and, and but don't tell him. But the the having the rivets on a separate file is actually Paramit's idea. It's, uh, a great, it's a great idea. He was testing out on me first because we weren't sure if it was going to create a circular reference and the whole file collapse. Yeah. So he's like, Chris, you try this, uh, see if it works. <laughs> <laughs> Told him I'd blame him, although he'd have to redo it if it failed. But that, but um, yeah, fortunately, it was quite a good idea. Uh, you have to be really careful because it just it could be you could so easily create a circular reference because you're like taking data from a part, putting it into another part, and then you put in then you're going back again, like putting that rivet detail back onto the fuselage. So you, you are there's like everything in me was like this is going to fail. It's going to corrupt the files. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I almost couldn't get my head around how it wouldn't do that, um, but I was super careful, and it, yeah, it fortunately didn't. And the reason was we had like I'd done the um, the Spitfire, uh, and then I was doing a new product, which I'm not going to tell you what it is, uh, which also had a lot of rivets on it. Um, and the Spitfire was so slow; my computer software just like was buckling under the amount of surface detail. Uh, and it became the most tedious thing in the world to work on. But actually realizing if we took all that rivet de- detail out um, and did it somewhere else, actually that'd be, it was so much quicker than to work on it. Um, so I think there's a little bit of like, I had to, had to try and be clever so that I didn't break it. Um, the overall process was faster than this new one, which was great. Um, absolutely. To- uh, absolutely. And can I, can I interject just quickly for, for our listeners who don't understand what you said about a circular reference? Oh, <laughs> I mean, as a CAD guy, I, I know uh-huh, exactly what you're talking about. But so to just put it in, in simple terms, let's say that you've decided that the, air, the shape of the airfoil on the Spitfire is a certain curve. And you use a projection of that curve to create a path, and you're going to pattern a line of rivets along that curve yeah and then later after you've done all that you decide oh shit the curve is wrong and you have to go back and change it that affects everything that's attached to that curve and now your model implodes and you spend days tearing your hair out and and crying on the bathroom floor because you can't find the problem it's it's a nightmare so there's this um so yeah if we've got like uh so you're you're you've kind of it's like the what came first thing isn't it when you get the uh-huh. circular reference um i'm i want to design that uh, aerofoil shape based on this bit of data but now i'm now I've, that 
original bit of data I want to change because I've been working on this aerofoil shape and I realized that first bit of data is wrong. And so I now like use my new aerofoil shape to change the original data. Now, both things are reliant on each other and, and neither is solid anymore. Um, and I didn't know for the first couple of years that when that happens, the software creates a little word file that it buries deep in its like uh, deep in the files folder structure that tells you where the failure is. And nobody told me. <laughs> Secret note, and I, it hides away. I spent ages trying to put circular references to view, especially when I'm like new designer and I cock up a lot. Um, and then it was like, oh no, it just tells you in this little folder. Like that, like that. Ah, oh, I was angry that day, and I'm not an angry person. Um, <laughs> but uh, I've remembered it since. Uh, but to answer your actual question of the rivets in a in the mold, um, you mentioned about burning in, which is essentially what it is. So we use um, uh, like electro. Oh, come on, what's it called? Electro um, electro discharge machining. Yes, yes, that's the one. EDM. That's <laughs> it. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks um, and so the the mold makers will make a little copper. Uh, plate, um, which won't be the size of the whole part, if it's a big part, especially, uh, it'd be a little section of it, um, which they have uh, cut out and got all these, you know, hundreds of little bumps in it, which are every rivet. Uh, and then they sink that with a whole load of electrical charge uh, into the steel, and that erodes with spark erosion, loads of little sparks that burn away the metal. Um, but see, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's the other way around, isn't it? So on the copper bit, it's having to be um, they're raised, yeah, uh, yes. <clears throat> but the the issue with getting them finer is that if you you can't do a whole big piece at once and get really fine detail because that you'll need to send way more current through that bit of copper mm -hmm. to get any of the erosion going on. And so now you're you're like it's like hitting it with a sledgehammer. Um, so if you want the finer detail, you need to break up that bit of copper into smaller and smaller electrodes. Um, so each one you can put in with a more controlled amount of uh, like ampage, more current and and get a finer like a uh, um, burning off of the detail. Uh, so it's a slow process and an expensive process. I can, uh, I so can imagine. Detail better costs a lot more money because mm -hmm. now each time, imagine each time they're having to like fit this electrode into their uh, like the CNC machine and drop it and like, well, first line it up within you know, a tenth of a millimeter or, or you know, hundredth of a millimeter precision and sync it again within like crazy precision and then do it again for the next little section next to it and next to it, next to it. It just is a long process. Absolutely. And so does the, do, do all the rivets end up being inserts in the tool? Uh, yeah. Uh, so we recently wow. had some stuff back which didn't have any surface detail on it to begin with. This first set of shots didn't have any surface detail. Uh, which I was like, oh, come on, guys, you've, barely, you've, not, you've not done the thing I've asked you to. Uh, and then realized that they are actually being like, much smarter now. Um, like, of this process, we're always changing. Uh, actually, this first set ha doesn't have the surface detail on so that we can make all of the, uh, if there's any fit adjustments that we need to make, we can do that without any of the, like, this long process that they'll have to do afterwards and the fear that they may have to redo it if we ask for some big change, you know? Mm -hmm. um, because they will, they'll go over the whole mold again to put the surface detail on with these electrodes. You don't want to double that cost either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it's all it's all so much about cost. I mean, like that. Do, do you guys use slides on anything or lifters 
it's a good yeah we um only if we really have to it's something that is always always debated um with us because sometimes using slides would make our job so much easier um but they also and model makers love you for it when you do that yeah <laughs> no absolutely and and so like it's this compromise and, and the whole thing is always you're always balancing on you like between the the cost like actually this needs to make money so that we stay in a job um and it needs to be a good product so people buy it um it costs a bit more to add slides into the mold which is one cost but also there's there's now an additional thing to go wrong in the rest of the manufacture um and so we don't want to cover the whole thing in slides because we're just going to ask for issues like for the entire production run that this product's going to be in the range which you know, could be 10 20 years um and so we as much as possible we are currently in the mindset that we avoid using them um so like a to keep our product a little bit cheaper uh, but also to avoid further issues. But we we will use them. We're not like, we'll not never use them. You know what I mean? Like the Spitfire has some slides in it because it was the only way to get detail on some really prominent parts like the top of the cowling. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't want to split that up because it's so key as the bit that you see. But we wanted to have the detail running all the way around. So you yeah, you just have to do it sometimes. But. Production life is is obviously got to be a big part of the decision. And I, I know that a lot of people don't realize just how much smaller volumes are for molding plastic models than they are for regular consumer products. But without giving away any company secrets, what do you kind of feel like, what do you, what do you guys kind of look at as what's the average life expectancy of a tool in terms of shots? I mean, are you guys going for 10,000 shots or a million shots? Like <laughs> um, I don't really want to talk about numbers that we actually produce, but I will say that um, generally the tools are warranted for half a million shots, basically. That's that's up there. That's up there for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the tool life depends a lot on the hardness of the material that's yeah, absolutely. used. Absolutely. Um, but the harder it is, the, the longer it takes to... More expensive, and, and therefore the more expensive it is. So you know, there's there's a compromise, um, but it is why you, you know if you buy if you buy a product that was maybe thought absolutely amazing in terms of surface detail and completely flash free and everything, you know, say a decade ago, after a decade of production, it you know the the product won't be quite as good anymore. Um, yeah, there seems to be a huge variation. But I mean, just going back to the thing about slides, um, because of the mechanical nature of the way the bits slide and the way they're forced to slide, it is the first thing that needs maintaining on a tool um, in production. Yeah. So a tool with slides will um, you know, need more maintenance than a tool without them. There's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, everything about it's more expensive. More expensive to design yeah. it, more expensive to build it, yeah. more expensive to, to run it. I mean, so, one of the things that's fascinated me a little bit was like some of the, the vintage classic stuff that we that we sell is like those tools could be fifty years old um, and still working. You know, but you can obviously tell the the quality's like dropped away. But part that's I guess a mixture of the technology's got better to make them and this thing's being used a whole bunch. Um, but you don't know how long the stuff we're making now will continue to be used for. Uh, you know, so you want to, I guess the stuff we're making, we're making 
so that it will last. Yeah, of course. So, Chris, you've done the Spitfire and you've done the Hellcat. What what other kits have you gotten? Uh, most recently, I did the uh, Vulcan as well. That was a um, fun, different one. A big triangle uh, was pretty, you know, a different thing to try and get my head around. Um, what else have I done? I've done the, the two Defiance we did in the last 10 years, the uh, 72nd and the 48th. They were quite fun projects. Really enjoyed those. Um, B seventeen, yes, that was that was quite. It was nice to sort of do a plane with a with a nice full interior. It was quite interesting for me. Uh, I hadn't done something like that before. Um, and then going a bit further back, I did the little Mary Rose, which is still probably my favourite little thing I've got to work on. Um, it didn't sell particularly well, but uh, it was uh, a wonderful little little project. Uh, what else have we done? Yeah. Oh, uh, Hawker Hunter. 48 scale. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people love that kit. That was very, I mean, I don't know if the sales reflected it, but certainly from what I hear, it was a very successful kit. Yeah, it's just such a, like, yeah, beautiful looking aircraft. It's sort of real classic looking jet. It's quite cool. And that's yes. something that Airfix have kind of have made their niche, isn't it? The, the Cold War British aviation, military aviation. Yeah, it does. It... Who, who we are does influence our choice to a certain extent because our biggest market is UK. You do, you know, you do tend to choose British subjects. It's inevitable, I think. Um, although, you know, we're very conscious that other subject matter sells well too. You know, we've done lots of American stuff, lots of German stuff. But um, when it comes to doing slightly more obscure or, or less obvious subjects, they tend to be British, I think. Because um, we can rely on British modelers to buy them from us, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it seems to work that way. So, how long from soup to nuts did it take you guys to to do the Spitfire, the new one? Yeah, I was actually just thinking as you're saying. So, I was thinking that when I first was working there, I was given a lot of the small projects uh, as trying to do for the new designers, like um, you know, get to grips with what you're doing. I was able to do like three or four projects in a year, those first couple of years. And I felt like I was doing <laughs> loads. And now it's like one project every two years. Like <laughs> it feels like a totally different piece. Uh, so that's an exaggeration. Maybe like design wise, these some of these big ones like the Hellcat and the Spitfire. And, um, I think the Vulcan felt like it took a long time, but uh, those the 224 scale ones were a full year in design, um, just sitting on CAD, working through that bit, uh, which uh, is... It's hard to stay enthusiastic um, after that much time, uh, but uh, there's still these like little changes throughout the throughout the product, like the design process. Anyway, you, like you start off with your big shapes and try and, and that's kind of quite entertaining, and then and then you're trying to figure out how to split it up, and that's a whole other like mindset, and then you're trying to add, find all the details. So the, even over a year, it's still you, know, you feel like you're making progress. So kind of um, like kind of like actual model making. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> you, Building it up layer by layer, you're trying to think. You're trying to think a few steps ahead, like what what's going to make my life easier when I get there. Uh, I don't want to give myself some bad foundation, like CAD geometry, uh, that's going to screw it up later. Like like you say, I want to try and um, design it in a way that if I realise I've made the shape wrong, I can adjust it, and you know, ideally, I've constrained it correctly and, and given it all the right information that everything will just reform into place nicely. But yeah, that probably happens 
one in 10 times. Um, and then it was about a year of uh, in engineering. So from looking at the tool drawings and beginning to have a conversation with the mold makers to going through the um, test shot iterations. So maybe two or three times of, of them sending us test shots, us building it a couple of times, making comments saying, okay, the fit here is a bit too loose, just that, like this detail needs a little bit of work on. Um, and that whole process will take a few, I think for the, actually for the Spitfire, it took about a month the first time I got the test shots, uh, about a good, good four weeks of building this up on repeat and finding all the issues and get my calipers out and trying to understand, right, why is this not working? Like, where do I need to make these little adjustments? Because you know, you've gone from something theoretical in CAD to now something real. And even though you're involving that CAD data all the way along, you're still also involving people um, and now actual material that is never as perfect never. as it was in the past. Never. Um, so how many times do you reckon you've built that Spitfire? <laughs> yeah, uh, too many. Um, <laughs> probably... You said you're not a model maker. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean... I can't complain because I, I did build it a lot of times, but it was I didn't have to paint it at all. Whereas poor Paramjit, he had to paint four of them uh, in like two months or something ridiculous. Like uh, it's insane how quickly he built. The, so we wanted a bunch for taking to the model shows. Um, yeah. But for me, I probably made, yeah, I probably made about six full ones and then a bunch of like the smaller assemblies like the engine, you know, needs obviously needs a little bit more attention because it's a complicated little section. So I just then, once I've figured out, okay, these bits are working fine, I'll now just build up the bits that still need a bit of, like I need to put my head back into. Do you guys do you guys start out with 3D printed prototypes? Yes, yeah, yeah, always. The first time, um, first thing we get is a, is a 3D printed prototype, which we've been doing for like ever since I joined. So um, are, you, are you printing right there in the office? Do you guys have your own printers? We, um, it's, yeah, in the last year, actually, we've got some nice printers in the office, uh, which is a new thing for us. And I like, it's really enjoyable as, especially as the design team, um, to be able to print now, like midway through a project, be like, oh, I, I want to see whether my concept for how this stuff's going to assemble is going to, is it worth me carrying on down that avenue? Uh, let's just print it off downstairs. Um, which has been fantastic. Really enjoyed that, but we are still going out of house for the more like the final, like before we go to tooling 3D print, just because uh, it's still better quality and they've got some better finishing processes. So like, obviously we can afford, you know, 100,000 uh, pound printing shop <laughs> in, in the company. <laughs> that, just, that just would be insane. Um, and with the speed that 3D printing technology like progresses, it would then be out of date, you know, in five years time. Um, and so this, we still go out of house for, uh, to get the main prints done. Like when we're, when we're sure of, of what we're, oh, at least we think we're sure. So like, we're not going to, we don't want to do that more than once because it's expensive, but they have some nice finishing processes like sandblasting, which just gets rid of all the little, um, uh, like support nubs that are left over on the part. And also it, it just tends to help the tolerances, like 3D printed parts just, tend to be maybe a little bit overbuilt um, as much as you adjust the settings. That's what mm, I found anyway. I, I, just... I know I know these feels for sure. Yeah. And so their their process of sandblasting like gets the, the finish nicely and it just gets rid of that whatever it is, like 
layer lines, build artifacts. Yeah. And the and stuff it, that you can do, the stuff that you can do with even a, a $300, you know, consumer level resin printer right now, I mean, with the 8K yeah. machines that have come out, that's plenty good enough for checking engineering concepts. You don't, you yeah. know, you don't no, it's, it's amazing. A, you have to buy a $15,000 a Sega. I don't want to spend a whole day cleaning up 200 parts. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that a lot of guys who are, you know, they see the cool stuff that people are doing on Facebook with their 3D printers and they're like, oh, I got to get one of those. And they don't realize it's a whole different kind of work from just clipping parts off of a sprue. And it's not, it's not WYSIWYG, not at all. No, and you've got to, like, there's a bit of thought, isn't there? It's been interesting to learn. I think our brains work relatively well as being just the jobs that we're in. But, like, the orientation that you put it in, the, the three is going to totally change the quality of your print. Um, and so you're trying to, like, relearn that sort of thing. It's been interesting, I guess. There's also, like, you realize you, you design it totally differently. If, I was, if this was just for 3D printing, you could make a totally different set of designs. Yeah, it's not get away with, you can get away with a lot more than you can in, in, in injection molding. Yeah. So we, we could, we could talk for an hour about 3d printing, but I, I'm just curious now after <laughs> I can, um, <laughs> but, but I'm just curious now after the range of kits that you've worked on and a decade doing it. Um, and this, this question is, is, is for both of you guys really, but what, what do you sort of a three part question? What, what do you consider the hardest part of kit development? What do you consider the most important part? And what's your favorite part? Well, I'll let you go first because I've been chatting for a while. I think for me, as, as the guy who manages the whole process, um, there isn't a favorite part, or at least um, my favorite part is the whole product. Um, I think it's it's incredibly important to think of it as a whole product and not get lost in individual aspects of it. Um, and, I, and I kind of realized that when you, um, when you watch these unboxing videos um, on YouTube and you realize that um, a, a really important aspect of, of the product is, is how it looks when you take that lid off for the first time. Um, you know, it, it's that sense of um, yeah, this is a this is going to be a brilliant quality product, or actually, this is all stuffed into this box, higgledy piggledy, and it's not going to be great. Do you know what I mean? You can you can um, uh, you can alter people's perceptions of what they're getting so so easily. You can so easily get it wrong, um, and so. You know, every aspect of what we do is, is so important because it all adds up to a brilliant product. And and any bit of it that we don't we don't do very well spoils the whole thing. Um, so so for instance, you know, um, sometimes when we do the box lid illustration, um, what we think is going to be really appealing doesn't work, and you end up doing it a second or third time before you end up with something that you think is uh, worthy of the of the plastic parts inside the box um, and, and even the instructions you know the instructions are something that we really actually quite enjoy because um, you know you can you can really alter somebody's experience of the product with the instructions 
you can either make it easy for them or you can make it hard for them. Um, you know, irrespective of whether the plastic parts are, you know, they might be fantastic, but if you don't do a good job of showing people how to put them together, um, and and you know, then it becomes a struggle for them. Then you've kind of failed to make a whole product that's great, even though the plastic parts themselves might be wonderful. Um, so it's you know, my satisfaction comes from, you know, ultimately, you know, those online reviews that say, yeah, fantastic product, you know, as well as just a fantastic model. Um, you know, I really like it when people say, oh, that's a fantastic piece of box art. Or, or the thing that I really love is when people say, well, oh, that's not really my kind of subject, but that box art was so good, I couldn't resist buying it. You know, and that makes me think, yeah, that's, uh, we did a great job of that, you know. There's a lot that goes into presenting a product that people don't consciously notice but makes yeah. a big difference yeah. like the gloss lamination on the box like the yeah. you know yeah. how well yeah. constructed the the corners of the box and stuff like that yeah. it just feels like a more quality product but they yeah. couldn't necessarily tell you exactly why but every, all of those is a decision you've made when you're creating that product all of them is experience and you know a, a vision of what you've got of how it's going to be when it's finished and i don't yeah. think people realize how much goes into that and model makers are just i mean i can't you know having to please an audience of model makers is a nightmare because <laughs> we you know we just as a as a as a population we get so obsessive about such specific things i mean you know yeah you do grow a thick skin actually because you know you do you do <laughs> We do collectively take quite a lot of criticism sometimes. And, well, that's you know. that, and that's going to get into a question that I'm going to ask you guys to kind of close this thing out. But, but, Chris, I want to hear what what you know from your perspective as a designer. What what are yeah, your, yeah. you know, difficulties I, um, and favorites? I wonder if this is more about my character as I was thinking about it, thinking it through, because I realize it's the beginning of each stage I enjoy, and then within two weeks. I'm not enjoying it anymore. So, <laughs> so again, like like actual bottle making. Yeah. <laughs> Every bit feels it, like the oh great new project. Like let's try and find the the overall shapes. It's really enjoyable. And then and you're like oh I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave that little fiddly bit for a little bit later. And then you get to the point where I can't leave the fiddly bit anymore. And like oh I don't like this anymore. Let's let's get onto the spin it up bit. And like try and jump ahead a few steps because I'm bored of trying to find shapes. Um, and then, and then, yeah, you reach complicated bits or uh, putting detail on. When you get to that stage, it's like finally the thing's coming to life. Like you're, you're, you're really getting a sense of scale when you start putting the detail onto something. Um, yeah, before that, you're looking at it and it could be 72nd or 24th because it just looks like a blank plane. But you put the detail on, you can like, oh, I'm really seeing how this is going to come. But then after uh, six weeks, eight weeks of putting rivets on, is not enjoyable anymore. Uh, as you, can <laughs> you are you are the uh, you are the actual OG rivet counter. Yeah, oh, I ha you have to be because I know the rest of you are going <laughs> to hold me to account. But like, <laughs> I've, uh, I've counted more rivets than I ever did, thought I would like to in my life. Um, but I tried to get it accurate. <laughs> so, uh, and actually, I feel like we get less complaints now. So hopefully, we're doing something right. Um, and then, but so all that is enjoyable, but actually then getting the, probably the most enjoyable bit out of all of those like beginnings is getting the first prototype. Um, because that's the first time of seeing this thing in your hands. 
and it is just yeah that's just a really lovely moment um, it is it's a big moment yeah absolutely um, but it, it does still have the same sort of effect that like day one is great and then you realize all the places you've popped up um and then you get that just gets annoying again but seeing it in real life for the first time is is a really lovely feeling um so that's probably like right at the top getting the first test shots is also high but it's you've already had it in your hands once you know so it's um it's enjoyable but actually the prototype is probably the, the most exciting stage for me i think chris do you have do you have to draft all your own parts or does the tool do the mold guys do that yeah oh, i wish i could say that they did that <laughs> uh, but alas no we have to do all of that which um which actually you then you have to think about that really early on um, yeah. because sometimes when you're if you want to add draft later it can screw up how a bunch of stuff's gonna fit together um so yeah that with Drafts is one of the major constraints that we're always working to. It's um, yeah, to. it's it's a battle that every engineer who's done any injection molding design has, has you know looks at with dread because because for for anybody that doesn't understand out there in listener land, you can't mold a box with ninety degree sides because it won't come out of the tool at least not without getting damaged. So it has to be ang- the sides of the box have to be angled so that it'll pop out more like a, a cone. That's an extreme example, but so so there are rules to that, and obviously that can affect the way that, that something looks because if it's supposed to look like a box and now it yeah. looks like a pyramid, you know, model <laughs> makers are going to be like, "Well, why is this inaccurate?" Well, yeah, and so that like giraffe will be one reason why we have to split things, yep. like well, something like a box. You're exactly right, like what you think you could make that in one piece, but actually now I've got to make it in two now because of the draft issue. Um, All right. Well, we, we could just keep going. This has been super fun, but I'm sure you guys would, it's evening over there. You'd probably like to go home and have some dinner and a beer, but I, I, I want to, uh, you know, kind of close this out with something that, that you guys have, have alluded to and, and talked a little bit about, um, it, you know, the truth is the the reality of the marketplace with model makers is that we are a complaining, bitching, difficult to please bunch of customers. Fickle, fickle people. Fickle. <laughs> Absolutely fickle. We, we're obsessive. We're detail oriented. We're a bunch of know-it-alls. It's, I mean, that that's a, that's a tough customer base. And I, I, you know, look, let's just keep, let's just keep it real. I mean, that's what we do on this, on this show. You guys have received some arrows in your direction over the course of, of the years that I've at least been in the hobby. Um, some criticism about some of your efforts. And I, I, I'm curious if you guys are, and, and I think that you've sort of already alluded to this because you've talked about watching, you know, unboxing reviews and, so, so, but, but like Chris, you know, how aware of you guys are, are you guys of that as a, a company, as a team, as individuals? I mean, do you really pay attention to it or do you take Joe Rogan's advice and just never read the comments? Um, and, 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 and how do you process that? Um, I think for me, I, uh, I generally stay quite clear of a lot of that. Um, I'd say the most feedback is often like when going to the shows and having face-to-face conversations i think that partly it's just healthier like having a face-to-face um, it's easier to talk critically face-to-face because it's not impersonal you know what i mean like 
and you can have a conversation about okay that, that's why that happens etc so like that's great always up for that but um i tend not to read a lot of reviews about my the stuff that i've worked on um too much i know our researcher like will do a lot of that um that's sort of i guess maybe sort of part of his role just gathering information um and we'll pass on stuff which we've got wrong uh, but I tend, I personally um, tend not to go into the comments myself. Yeah, it can be, it can be maddening. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's, I'm sure, I think, I don't think anybody doubts that everybody is trying to do their best and it's a complicated thing. And, you know, you, you can, there's always going to be somebody who's, who's going to grumble. Uh, it actually um, reminds me of the thing that I forgot earlier. You know, I said I had a thing that was in my head and it slipped out of my head. Um, one of the reasons why I enjoy this job as a is is nobody's going to die if we get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Other engineering jobs, there could be some serious consequences. Yeah, absolutely. But thankfully, all that's going all the worst that's going to happen is somebody's going to be a bit annoyed, which <laughs> I can very happily live with, um, rather than a death. So I mean, as well, stress free is one of the reasons that I like this job. Uh, Martin might not feel differently because I think he he absorbs a lot of the stress on my behalf, which I am incredibly grateful for. Uh, I, I do kind of see, I kind of see the criticism as a as an opportunity to see how you might improve the product. Um, there's lots of aspects to this. Um, I think you know some of them psychological. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are desperate to show the world how knowledgeable they are about some subjects. <laughs> Model makers? But no, come on, really? What they forget is, is that we have to match their knowledge for everything that we do. And yeah. so, you know, we They're have single to subject experts. Specialists and knowledge holders for all of those different subjects. Um, and it's not easy. Um, you know, some of them, it's amazing how much is out there. Some of them, it's amazing how much information isn't out there. Um, sometimes we find things and we realise that we've probably found information that nobody else has. And, and, you know, we often say to each other, crikey, we know so much about that. We must probably be the country's biggest experts on that subject. You know, because maybe we found a load of um, original manufacturer's drawings that, that you know, we know people have said they don't think exist anymore, or, or something like that. You know, and but you know, overall, you know, we are only human beings, and obviously, you know, we have our you know little communication breakdowns now and again, where we perhaps are too busy to talk to each other as much as we should, or we're too busy to to review the designs with each other as much as we ought to, and. And so, you know, occasionally it goes wrong. Um, you know, the uh, the pandemic and the lockdowns and working from home was really tricky for a team of people that spend so much time um, talking with each other about what they're doing. Um, you know, that was really difficult for us, especially for, you know, having people in the team who were perhaps not ever so experienced working on their own at home was you know, it was a tricky, a really tricky thing to, to keep track of everything and, and make sure that it was all good. So, you know, when, um, 
you know, if you go to a show and, and some guy comes up to you and says, oh, I can't believe you got that wrong. How did you get that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and I just can't say sometimes. Did it I just say, to annoy you? <laughs> I ask them what they do for a living um, and, and they'll tell me and I'll simply say and you never ever made a mistake you know yeah, doing yeah. what you do um, you know because we all do don't we we are human and we're not computers and um, we don't always get it right however hard we try you know and believe me we're all desperate to get everything perfect but you just can't it's not well, and it, and it can be, you know, it, it can be hard to keep things in perspective. I mean, look, I'll be fully transparent. As a guy with my background, I'm a very unforgiving critic of kit engineering. <laughs> I still haven't forgiven you guys for the joint and the Spitfire legs from the 2015 uh, 148th kit. I, but, but you know you have and part of the reason why we wanted to have you guys on here was to put a more human face to it to let people out there in the marketplace you know see and hear what it's you know what it takes to produce something as complex as an injection molding kit and as mad as you might be after you've spent months and months building your airplane and you've gotten down to that landing gear leg and you feel like you're on the brink of total disaster and you want to just, you know, throw everything in the, in the bin and, and, and your stress levels are off the, you know, off the charts that there are human beings at the other end of the process yeah. and that it's important to keep that in mind. And I really have a lot of respect for you guys for, for coming on here, kind of, you know, coming into the lion's den. Cause if anybody knows, I mean, anybody who knows this group of three knows <laughs> that, that, you know, we don't take it easy on anybody. So I, I really commend you guys for being willing to do that. And I've also noticed as an observer that you guys are doing more sort of, I don't know if you want to call it like public outreach or, or, or relationship marketing, but like with your YouTube videos, the, the the tour that you guys did of the molding facility where you're doing the 124th Spitfire and kind of going through that PowerPoint presentation, that's 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 great stuff. And yeah, I think we've I, realized that from a marketing point of view, um, because modelers are the kind of people they are, you know, they're interested in detail and they're a bit nerdy. Um, you don't want any marketing fluff. You want information about what we do, how we do it, you know, what, how we create your product. And so, Absolutely. You know, the realization that putting designers on screen or, or, you know, putting manufacturing on screen is, is the sort of information that, that our consumer wants. Yeah. Mean, and, and nobody else is doing that. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't get that from Tamiya. We don't get it from Hasegawa. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it, there, there's just not enough of that, in my opinion. And I and I hope, I think you guys are doing a great job with that. And I hope that your competitors will follow your lead in that respect. Um, They're not as good looking as us. <laughs> <laughs> there's that too. <laughs> All right. Well, look, we, I feel like we are just, we have just worn you guys out um, and that, that we probably need to, to, to shut this down. But Chris, yeah, Tracy. It's time for beer. I'm sorry, say again? We're feeding it's time for a beer. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. 
Chris, Tracy, do you guys have any any closing questions? Yeah, I've really enjoyed having you guys on and having this conversation. Will has obviously been at the forefront of all the questions, but he's got the background to ask those questions. But, um, you know, needless to say, Chris and I have both really enjoyed having you guys on, even though we haven't been uh, the most interactive. Um, it's been we've just really enjoyed sitting back and listening to this conversation. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks yes, for listening. Thank you. That's been great. And no yeah. swearing to edit out either. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, oh, I don't not, edit it out. I leave not, it in. Yeah, not from you guys. <laughs> yeah, we we never. Yeah, we don't edit it. <laughs>So there we go. Uh, once again, uh, straight from the source. Um, I, I think that was a that was a really cool interview. Um, again, I'm stoked that those guys were willing to take uh, some time at the uh, you know at the end of, of the day to uh, talk with us three idiots. Um, I don't know. What did you guys think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they're you know they're pretty OG uh, as far as model makers go. So it was really nice to have them on and. You know, again, like maybe some of us aren't the biggest fans of what they do, but it's certainly interesting to hear kind of what's going on with them, how seriously they take um, moving forward and and improving quality and, you know, sort of reaching out to to younger people. So, I mean, they're, you know, they're they're trying to be progressive, which is really great to, to hear. Absolutely, it is, and they're and, and look, they're doing a lot of this kind of stuff. I mean, they've been. Um, I think that they did some other interviews, um, and they have have done a lot of videos on their YouTube channel, 
where they take you inside the manufacturing facility for that new Spitfire. And I really think those are worth watching. Um, some of the, some of them are a little bit long and, and a little nerdy, but they you know they've they've got one where they go through a PowerPoint presentation on the design of the Spitfire. I think that stuff is what all of these kit companies should be doing. Uh, it's like I've said before. I think they should all be lined up waiting to be on, if not our podcast, somebody's podcast. Uh, so look, good on Airfix, good on those two guys for being willing to take the time and and for them at the corporate level making the decision that this is the right way to communicate with the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were great guys and they they very articulate and very open to all of our questions, you know? Yeah. I, I, I've kind of, you know, of course, afterwards, you always think about the stuff that you wished you'd said or asked or, or forgot to ask. And, I, you know, I kind of wish that, that we had pressed them a little bit harder on some of the quality control things that, that we all know Airfix has experienced, you know, kits that have short shots or, um, you know, whatever. Um, but, Look, I think that they talked a lot about what they're doing to address quality. You know, what they're doing, when you watch the videos about how they're producing the Spitfire at the plant there in the UK, you can see that at least with that kit, they are really trying to make sure that nobody opens a box and is disappointed with what's inside. Um, I I forgot to ask, uh, uh, I forgot to ask them specifically uh, why they chose to make the instrument panel on that Spitfire a piece of clear plastic. Um, that, to me, was kind of an unusual design decision that goes way back to, like, Accurate Miniatures was doing that back in, I know their, their B-25 Mitchell kit had that, and it involved putting the decal on the back of it, and, and it was, anyway, I just was curious why they made that particular choice, and I forgot to ask them about it. So if anybody knows... Send us a letter. Um, but anyway, I, you know, overall, I think it was really cool. And I hope we can have them back. Yeah, absolutely. Really fun to, to chat to, you know, like I said, somebody who's been in the market for that long. Yeah. And I mean, these are the guys, right? These are the guys who are you know, right, you know, there every day, um, you know, doing the design work and, and managing the whole, you know, process. So I think it's good to hear that. Um, I think that one thing that I hope is really like hits home for a lot of guys that listen to it is that, that neither of these guys is a model maker. Um, at least not, you know, to the same level of complete obsession that we are. Um, and that, that, uh, that that neither of them are are mechanical engineers or product design engineers and and i feel like that's important because i think that a lot of people assume the exact opposite uh when it comes to these kit production companies that you know that everybody there thinks the way that we do and the truth is that they just don't and so they're going through a learning process and what's important is that they are, in fact, learning and improving with each subsequent product release. Okay, so we lost our compadre, Chris, to some technical difficulties. Uh, that cable that stretches across the internet got bitten to by a fish or something. <laughs> no. Anyway, Hancock, anything else? No. Signing off? No, no. Uh, just happy that everybody's listening and 
you know, hope your bench time is good. Yep, it's good to be back. I feel like this is a strong start to our new season, and um, I think we're going to have something good for the next one. I don't know that we've that we've even decided, uh, but again, we are on a three-week rotation now, so this episode is going to come out this weekend. I think that's February the 17th, and then we'll be back in action three weeks after that. So with that, we really appreciate you guys listening. Adios, bitches. See you later. Sayonara. And Chris says goodbye. <laughs>